Hey, Media Evil listeners. Before the episode gets started today, I have just a quick announcement. So the announcement basically is I wrote a book. It's called Jewish Women in the Medieval World. It is a brief thematic overview of Jewish women's lived experiences in Europe and the Middle East from about 500 to 1500, plus a selection of related texts in translation. And I'm giving away two paperback copies of the book to listeners. So to enter, please rate and review Media Evil on uh, on your podcatcher of choice. Five-star reviews only will be considered. Apple Podcasts is ideal, but other podcatchers are also okay. And send an email with your name and a screenshot of your review to media.evilpod at gmail.com. And I'll then randomly select two entries. So you have until Monday, May 30th to enter. So that's still a couple of weeks after this episode comes out. And it is open to listeners anywhere in the world. So thank you all so much for your support of the podcast. It's meant a lot over the last few years. And please enjoy the episode. Welcome to Media Evil, a medieval pop culture podcast where we talk about how medieval and medieval-inspired movies, TV, and books depict the medieval world. What do they get right? What do they get wrong? And what do they tell us about how modern people see the medieval past? I'm Sarah Ischdecker, a medieval historian, and today I'm joined once again by fellow medieval historian Miti von Weissenberg to talk about the film Francesco. So Miti, welcome. Thank you, thank you. I am associate professor at Xavier University in soon to be quite snowy Ohio, apparently. And my research focuses on late medieval religion and masculinity, particularly in hagiography and saints. I normally work on married saints, but I'm willing to check out the bachelor <laughs> podcast. So yes, thank you for yeah, venturing into the uh, the bachelor the bachelors of sainthood with me today. Well, I feel like I, I, I teach a course on Francis of Assisi. Well, actually, I use Francis of Assisi to talk about the 12th century, my favorite century, even though I don't actually work actively on the 12th century. And so I teach this course called Francis, colon, the making of a saint. I really suck at naming courses and articles. <laughs> but so as part of my teaching, there's this one day to kind of give the students a little bit of a, a relief from all the reading. They have a paper due, and then in class, I show them sort of this, the, the breakage between France of Assisi and his parents mm-hmm. um, in three different movies, one from 1960, mm-hmm. one from 1972, and then this one from 89. And so I felt like we should totally do a Francis of Assisi. Yes. It's Francis of, of Assisi Palooza, is that like a thing? So yeah. yeah. I someday I live in hope we're convincing you to doing the other two Francis or three Francis movies. <laughs> uh, let's start with this one. This was yeah, your I pick. I could see you going to that palette of uh, Francis options. 
Yes. And I, I was also excited since while I do not work on things quite as directly related, I certainly end up spending some time talking about saints and sanctity. And of course, of course, Francis in particular is being important. He certainly comes up in a number of my courses. And in my last pre-pandemic trip was driving around Italy and I got to go to Assisi, which is lovely. And also uh, came home with the wine bottle cover that is shaped like a friend that is uh, designed as a Franciscan habit that you can then put on top of your bottles of wine or liquor, which is one of my favorite possessions. I mean, what could possibly be better? Very true. And so, yes, we watched Francesco, which is the 1989 Francis film, which I chose as among the Francis options because I was fascinated by the casting of Mickey Rourke as Francis or Francesco. It certainly, I mean, I, I, I imagined before we started talking that I knew more about Mickey Rourke than I actually did. Turns out I have no clue. So I'm not sure why the casting surprised me because I had no clue. And I actually knew about this movie before Rourke's mm. comeback in The Boxer. Right. So that kind of doesn't work either. But, you know, I don't know if Cavani, the director, what say she had in the choice of casting. Mm -hmm. It is an interesting, it's an interesting choice. It is. Yeah. And so just to, just to say a little about some of my kind of thoughts about Mickey Rourke. So I, so I saw him, you know, in The Wrestler and he was very good, but you know, he is. Oh, the Wrestler, right? Not yeah, the, the Wrestler. But he's, you know, he's very rugged. He's older and he to me personally, didn't come off as, you know, extremely sexy. That was not my personal vibe and experience of Mickey Rourke. And so then when I was explaining this film and this like really kind of like rugged and almost scary Mickey Rourke to my mother, she was like, oh, like heartthrob Mickey Rourke is how she sees Mickey Rourke because she in particular remembers him from 1982 film Diner where he's, he's a very good-looking young man, as uh, he is also in this film. And so it is this, like, really interesting choice of, like, smoldering Francis. Mm -hmm. And smoldering in ways that make maybe more sense to a normal person and less sense for medievalist who works on saints. Yes. Yes. Which we may or may not come to later. Right. Also stars Helena Bonham Carter, another interesting choice as Chiara, or better known as Clara of Assisi, perhaps, and or St. Clair. And this is a very, very young Helena Bonham Carter, and very much kind of before, I would say, the particular image that she tends to now have, uh, very much kind of linked with, uh, you know, I mean, she was in a lot of Tim Burton films and was in a relationship with him and very much is associated with that sort of aesthetic. This is very much the uh, room with a view. Um, right. Bonham Carter. Yeah. So she is, you know, very, very kind of young and fresh faced in this film in ways that are kind of surprising. Otherwise there's, you know, a bunch of other lovely people mostly gentlemen specifically. There's not a ton of women characters in this film and mostly French and Italian and I've never heard of any of them. Yep, pretty much. But, yeah, interesting in that it's, you know, mostly, yeah, mostly like continental European actors and then they have like one American in the lead and one British actor as uh, the, the female kind of, you know, co-lead slash like hefty supporting role mm -hmm. and yeah other than that just yep nobody nobody who I've ever heard of but so yeah but they look so good in brown. 
Yes, they do. They all, they all look very good in brown. They also, you know, they also looked good in red pre-conversion. So mm-hmm. that's true. That's true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. A lot of, a lot of very nice young men. So the first section, the enumeratio or recap, is where we can delve into the details of this film, which uh, just essentially as a kind of overview is basically a kind of biopic that's told in a series of flashbacks, right? So it begins with, uh, it's the year 1226, Francis has just died, and then it is uh, essentially presented as being Chiara and the brothers who are closest to Francis, uh, basically sitting down and writing his and writing the Vita, right? Writing the hagiographical account of Francis's life. This is historically shockingly accurate. So interesting. Yes. Yeah. There's actually a call that comes out in the 40s. I should remember the exact date, but I don't. I could probably lock it up from the minister general. So the direct successor of successor of Francis in that sort of line of head haunters. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh shit, like all these people who actually knew Francis are dying. Like, dude, and out of this, we have this, you know, some famous biographies that come mm-hmm. out. The Legend of the Three Companions, Manus of Perugia, these sort of texts which were by these scholarships seems to have reached mm-hmm. a consensus that these were people who either knew, probably knew Francis immediately themselves or very close, like new people who had known. And they're mm-hmm. writing stuff. Um, the first biographies are like official biographies with the kind mm-hmm. of decisions and stuff. But I, that's one of the things I love most about this movie. Yeah. That whole frame tale. To what extent Claire or Chiara, they're going with the Italian sort mm-hmm. of things here, was involved is a different question. But there's something... Right definitely that really speaks to me about the framing of the movie yeah as as sort of I use these layerings of the biographies as mm-hmm. part of strategies and the fact that this movie has it somehow is so validating yeah and it really is also interesting in terms of the way in which therefore the film is not just about Francis's life but it's also about the process of creating this story about Francis's life which yeah, I think is is really interesting in how it's done. Of course, uh, on the other hand, there is the you know they're supposed these yeah, men are supposed to be dying, and I don't think they kind of bothered even trying using makeup to really age them up. So they all still look like they're like thirty. <laughs> but right. well, I think the idea is this is sort of a it's as opposed to the historical you know people writing this generation was sort of after and then subsequently they're sort of framing as immediately after the death they're coming yes. together. Yeah. You know, in 1226, he's just died. The first biography comes out by Thomas of Solano, 28-1229, with a context of, of canonization where the Pope is like, we need an official biography because there's all these people in Norway who've never heard of Francis. Yeah, and so you've, you've, you've got to have, you've got to have that bio. And you've, now you've got to have that biopic. <laughs> Good point. Good point. Mm-hmm. So we have Kiara as playing a central role in this and as being the one who kind of looks back on this very early memory uh, when they were both young and worldly. So we have Chiara as, uh, you know, she's kind of out shopping with her mother while Francesco is, you know, is he's the son of a merchant, of a, of a cloth merchant. And so he's uh, kind of, you know, bringing in these, uh, these fine cloths. We hear that his father is, you know, very, very taken with him, planning to soon turn over all these business interests with him to him. 
And there's a, there's a whole lot of also, I will just say, excellent animal acting in this film. So in this particular scene, I think he's got like a, like one, you know, there's like a, there's like a cat, like wandering through the background. One of his friends has a puppy. It's great. It's, there's a lot of good animal and action. There's also like the whole, one of the sort of proving that these brothers are so holy later, we have this like, oh, here's a lamb. Somebody gave us a lamb and mm-hmm. he's going to kill this lamb. And this right. lamb is part of this scene and it's sort of just chilling with the dudes that are kind of holding it. You know, nobody, there were no lambs hurt in the making of this movie. Good, good. I'm, I'm glad. I'm, I was kind of looking at that and I'm like, is that actually a real lamb? Because <laughs> it seemed very still. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But uh, yeah, but the, yeah, the, the cats and dogs seem to be having an excellent time. So we, we get this, this impression, right, of this very worldly young Francesco. Uh, he's, you know, he kind of goes out, he, he basically grabs like what looks like essentially a handful of potato chips. I think they're, you know, little, little sort of fried bits of bread or something and goes uh, to call on an array of prostitutes. Yeah, they're all kind of hanging out by this river, having some kind of a bacchanalia party there's food and like people hanging out and lounging in each other's laps and then there's a lot of sultry looks yeah so yeah we we see a lot of francis right having these overtly or quasi-sexual interactions with a variety of women and also see francis going to war so we have this war with uh, perugia he is taken captive. Uh, we see his father very much beside himself. Like the, I think one of his friends is like, well, I mean, the negotiations is usually, you know, you just like negotiate as like for all the captives as a group. And he's like, no, I want a special negotiation from my son and I will give all of my stuff. And it's really like, uh, he's sort of anxious and the mother's like, let's just throw all of our wealth at them. I actually was, have a question for you as my film expert. Mm-hmm. Um, that scene where you have the mass grave, it's an awful lot of nudity and dead. Yes. Is mm-hmm. that a dead giveaway that this is a European film or am I misunderstanding or misremembering or not? No, I don't know a little about films. I should probably not even bring this up, but I was sort of like a little bit like, oh, wow, there's like a bunch of naked people and you can actually see naked male nudity from the front, which I was sort of was like, wow, I don't know if I've seen that on a screen since I immigrated to the United States. Yeah, I would say, I would say that's more likely, certainly, or more common as something certainly that you would see in a European versus American film. Uh, you certainly would see piles of corpses <laughs> are quite popular in American films and especially American films set in the Middle Ages. But I would say the these shots are usually done so that you you would not be seeing, you know, full frontal male nudity in particular. Parental guidance advised for American audiences, but not for European audiences. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. In general, I would say as films about the Middle Ages go, if that's not something in particular that bothers you, you know, it's, I would say, relatively child friendly. Well, there is that whole when they're in the prison in Perugia and we, as the audience, are historically inaccurate. Yes. Why we have this war, that might be a little bit sensitive mm, true true yeah so we've, we've got some issues there which we'll, we'll kind of get into more of those details later yes but that in particular we are told that this war is really all about heresy and we see a gentleman uh who has been played dramatically yeah that that's yeah that's maybe the scene that you kind of want to get your kid to uh, avert their eyes um I was shocked when they're like, oh, and this is about heresy. I was like, 
Is it? What? I mean, <laughs> what? All the biographies of Francis that I've read in my life, this is, this is, what? But it's a good story in 1989. Fair enough. And that in particular, he's presented as having a gospel in the vernacular. Shocker. Shocked. Such a shock. And with this experience in prison and with this flayed heretic, so begin Francis's, uh, quote, oddities, as uh, the term is Our used. A lot of oddities, but one of the things that we also see is there's this book which was Fran- which is sort of like kicked around by the prisoners to kind of mm-hmm. pop, oh this is and then you know Francis is like oh it's it's in the vernacular and then he yeah. he keeps this book with us. So there's a dude who's just been flayed for being a heretic mm-hmm. and then Francis keeps this book. It's like why would you think that's a good idea? <laughs> they cut- I find a dude being flayed for having that book. I would want to like throw that book real far away from me. <laughs> Right, right. I mean, if that is the premise, I mean, we as a historian, I'm like, well, it makes perfect sense that he has the gospel. It's a skinny little book. It's, Mm -hmm. it might, it's, I mean, my guess is it's only one of the gospels. It's so skinny. Mm -hmm. Especially because we see the print and the print is not that small. Really not. Probably because, you know, the idea that people could actually handle a small in the Middle Ages is very alien, but they could. Mm -hmm. But this idea that, I mean, the gospel, a merchant or nobleman, but especially merchant, having a gospel mm-hmm. in the vernacular is actually not at all unusual. Right. right. But if if the movie has set up the premise that this is heres this is a heresy is a thing, and the vernacular Bibles are heretical thing, Francis holding on to this just uh, and then they don't I mean, right. make a thing of it. I feel like there's either a missed opportunity or like just skip the historical inaccuracy with the heresy. But what, right. And especially because we'll talk about this later, but I find the kind of question of how heresy is handled in this film really interesting because it kind of inserts all of this inaccurate heresy stuff here, whereas there are ways in which things that Francis did are problematic and that when other people did very similar things, they were defined as heresy. And we kind of skip over a lot of that. Yeah. So, yes. yes. There's some good Uh, opportunities to indulge in heresy talk later, but we don't. Oh, yes. Although you and I certainly will, but. Yes. Francesco comes home from the war with an aggressive cough and and a, and a variety of uncomfortable new ideas, I suppose. He and Chiara kind of bond as they're both giving charity. He kind of calls her out in this interesting way that he basically asks if she's only being charitable to kind of make herself feel good or because it's something that she's been taught she's supposed to do. And then we see her talking about this as something that she, uh, you know, that she thought about and that it was kind of something that, you know, hurt her feelings basically, but that she kind of used it to challenge herself and think about her own motivations. Yeah, which is really interesting because there is that there's a concern in the Middle Ages that people participate in charity, sort of ostentatious charity. Yeah. Um, at the same time, medieval theolo- theology had this sort of view like, why does God allow the evil of poverty to exist? Oh, well, so that wealthy people can gain salvation through charity. I mean, it's very handy. But it's also interesting yeah. in this particular movie that, uh, that Chiara is the one who performs charity. Hmm. And just sort of like inspired by her. There's sort of this nod to a famous episode in in the biographies of francis where there's a, a poor man who comes asking for for alms in the shop mm-hmm. and francis sort of chases him away and then feels really bad and runs after him and gives give charity and, and right 
it's made and this dude comes in and Francis and dad are just like scram. And then Chiara and her mom give charity to the dude, the beggar. And then Francis is like, oh, and scrambles up a bunch of money and learns after him, which is sort of interesting giving that kind of, you know, that uh, there was a time when the idea was like Claire was 100% influenced by Francis. Now mm-hmm. this moved to a different sort of point. But here it's sort of like Claire is like good and saintly independently of Francis and maybe even yes. like that. But yeah, and it's and it's also interesting because if I'm remembering correctly from uh, my uh, reading of like Vaucher or something years ago, the trope at least is that women often have a kind of early vocation and men often have more of a conversion experience. Yep. And that's something very much that we're kind of seeing on display here, right? That we have uh, Chiara as being presented as always being pious, if maybe initially somewhat more conventionally so, and Francis as as having yet yeah, this uh, this kind of conversion to some extent from uh, being a much more worldly individual. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And that sort of like near a death experience at war, which is typical for these conversions. Right. Suffers a, a serious illness in the biographies, which, you, you know, the mm-hmm. cost about probably alludes to that. And so this change in his personality kind of coming from that. Mm-hmm. Francesco is sent off to another war now to be a knight. Uh, and they're kind of getting together all of the fancy provisions for him. And uh, he then has this uh, this kind of transformative uh, moment, including that he, uh, so he encounters this leper. I think he's supposed to be a leper, right? Probably a leper. That, um, was, that was my guess in terms of, he's he clearly is not well. And my under, and my sense is that that's what they were getting at in terms of the real kind of shock and horror with which people react toward this person, which yes, is, is yeah, indicating that this person is, is I think a leper and that, you know, Francesco sees him, he starts to basically like throw stuff at him to try and get him to go away. Then it seems like starts feeling this guilt and uh, basically starts like giving away his stuff and rides off. And there's that sort of iconic moment from the biographies when he's very wealthy, he's a merchant, mm-hmm. and he meets and he sees another dude who's admiring his armor, and he gives him, he's just like, oh, do you like it? Here, have it. And that yeah. sort of alludes to its famous episode in, in his biographies where he encounters a knight who has poor armor and gives him mm-hmm. the armor. And there's sort of like an interesting social commentary about knights are supposed to be kind of the economic superiors because, you know all the, the the wealth that you need to maintain yourself as a knight is a lot mm-hmm. this is yes you know, arguments for why they were tax exempt and all these kind mm-hmm. of fun and then you have this rising social class the merchants and what happens in a society that has these rigid you know mm-hmm. social divides when you have like peasants because technically legally speaking francis and his father are peasants mm-hmm. but they're healthy and then he gives his fancy pantsy armor to this nobleman who Mm -hmm. is poor and so that is part of that kind of legend of Francis right yeah and of course also I mean in terms of thinking about Francis and his family that it is really interesting I think actually the film does a really interesting job uh, 
of at least gesturing at the fact that you have this, uh, you know, really growing class of uh, the urban or at least kind of town wealthy, right, of these uh, of these people who are in fields like, you know, that they are cloth merchants and that you can actually become quite wealthy off something like that. And you're not of the nobility, right, but you are, you know, often perhaps kind of wealthier than many people who belong to the nobility. And yeah, I think the film does a kind of really interesting job with that dynamic. And of course, with the fact that that is really central to how Francesco will eventually kind of uh, display his, mm-hmm. uh, his transformation. So we, we see him kind of continuing to struggle. He witnesses the suffering of the desperate poor. Mm-hmm. Uh, he sees this woman who I thought was, I think at least is the same woman that he was flirting with at some point earlier. And now she's dying. I didn't maybe pay close enough attention to facial features there. I thought it was the same woman, but I wouldn't swear by it. Enough in a wiggle room that we could interpret it like that, certainly. Right. Especially because like she, in this, at this moment when she's dying, she suddenly has like a lot of mud on her face in comparison with earlier. So I'm not 100% sure, but I think it was supposed to be the same woman. And he also encounters uh, this leper once again and embraces him, which the leper finds just extremely confusing. Which, considering there's laws saying that, you know, lepers are not allowed in towns, they're mm-hmm. ritually buried to sort of separate them from society. This is the 12th century is when you start getting a lot of leper hospitals, which rises from some of the same reasons why Francis is doing his sort of piety thing, this mm-hmm. late piety and charity and all this. But if you are legally and socially separated from society and then you have some dude come and like hug you, like, is, am I going to get into trouble? Like, is somebody going to right for like this? Right. You're just like, there's also, this is the time when the big concern seems not to have been like medical contagion, but mm-hmm. contagion. this idea of the lepers is unclean and morally mm-hmm. and, you know we hang out with them. And if a person who has leprosy believes this, you know, like, oh no, he's hugging me. Am I going to? Is he going to contract my sinful? Right, right. I could be reading an awful lot into that, but mm-hmm. it, I totally understand why why he's like really confused by this. Right, and also, and, and at first, also even in a just like very kind of simple way, he's at first just like, "Are you going to hit me again?" And then he's like, "What? What is? What is this? What is? What are? What are you doing with your body?" Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, so really, just yeah, the the kind of tr- the change right from this intense isolation is mm-hmm. uh, yeah, very very striking. He comes home, his father is like, what's going on? He ends up taking some uh, goods and uh, taking and going off with them to Foligno, where he sells them and then basically gives all of the money that he gains from this to the poor. There's um, that interesting scene where he's sort of come home and and he's asleep in this church, which would, you know, yes. I'm going to assume is the Church of San Damiano for reasons that have to do with the Francis story. And Chiara comes in and sees them. And then mm-hmm. picks up this crucifix and rehangs it, and then he kind of embraces it, cuddles it, and then the you know the father is like, "What the f- are you doing?" Yeah, and sort of such a very beautiful mis- medieval mysticism moment, mm-hmm. a dude that's like cuddling with the crucified Christ. Yeah, um, and then his missed opportunity. They don't actually. True. Have famous San Damiano cross which mm. if there is a cross we know what what it looked like it's yeah cross, and yeah they, a single time in this movie and which is really too bad but also I think it is really interesting right that we really 
get quite viscerally through getting to know his father, the real kind of shock that this would elicit for, honestly, like, you've got to feel bad for him, right? Like, this poor guy, he just wanted to, like, yeah, you know, he has this son, he likes his son, he just want to, like, pass, he just wants to, like, pass all of his stuff onto his son and assume that, you know, his son is going to continue the family business. And, like, he's, he's not getting that. He's definitely not getting that. I feel really bad for him. I mean, I, yeah. In, in for reals, we know that Francis had siblings, had brothers, but like mm-hmm. that's not part of the big narrative. I mean, right. So it's created as this like, I've built this trade empire. I have mm-hmm. this business and I'm going to pass it to my son. And then my son is like out making out with crucifixes. I mean, right. Like, yeah, making out with crucifixes and hugging lepers. Like, what? What, what are you doing? What are right. you even doing? Yeah. And we then have this interesting court scene where Francesco has declared himself formerly as a penitent, uh, has relinquished all of his inheritance claims. Uh, His father is trying to attempt a reconciliation. And uh, during this episode, Francesco strips of all of his clothing and lays it at his father's feet and says, I have another father. Yeah, which is kind of harsh. It's hard. It's so bad for this guy. And, it's, you know, it's sort of the scene is very different. It, it, it deviates a lot from the medieval narrative mm-hmm. um, where this takes place in front of the church and the bishop. Uh-huh. And in this one, I, and so there's this court scene, which I think is influenced by, you know, in the 1980s, the, the court, the courtroom mm-hmm. dramas, you know, law, yeah. you know, whatever Hill Street Blues and whatever those sort of like crime things that's my private theory. I actually don't know. But this, and the father is giving this inflamed speech to the audience about father's rights. And then the audience starts laughing. And first mm-hmm. you think they're laughing at him. And then you realize they're laughing at Francesco, who's basically taking all of his clothes off in front of a mural of innocent mm-hmm. earth, which is possibly details. A dilapidated mural as well. Because mm-hmm. everything uh, is dilapidated. Uh, is it, it's, I'll comment on this later, but I love how it's like all of these things that are like from like the 12th and like like the 12th century are like already dilapidated. I mean, of course, because everything is made in the Middle Ages. Because how else would we know it's medieval from quote unquote the medieval times, which is one of my terms ever. And then there's so the, the he's walking, Francis, Francesco is walking to his father, Pietro Bernardone, with his clothes to give them. And the mm-hmm. bishop the silk scarf at him, which then Mickey Rourke art- artfully covers his privacy. But in this, he is covered by the bishop's cloak, which is also a mm-hmm. rich symbol of now he no longer applies secular law, no longer applies to Francis, mm-hmm. the ecclesiastic law, which they verbalize very helpfully for us. Yes. Right. In this court scene. But I'm sort of, I'm, I'm, I wonder to what extent the choice was have a silk scarf so we can still see sexy Mickey work friends. I think it's probably that. A cloak because that covers sexy Mickey work friends. Right. Yeah. I think it's just that they want to have Mickey Rourke be basically still consistently naked over the course of this scene. They have milked the whole movie for as much like naked as they possibly could while still trying to be like, this is Francis of Assisi. Yeah, like, to to the extent that I'm almost, like, I feel like they were, like, well, I mean, like, it is part of the, you know, standard narrative that we've got this, like, stripping episode. Like, let's find somebody who's going to make that look good. Well, I mean, they really should 
watch the brother, son, sister moon from the mm. kids too, because that has a great stripping in front of them <laughs> scene and a walking <laughs> naked. Mm. But I, but I will also say kind of on a serious note that, you know, in, in both the version that we have here and in the, you know, original, you know, in the original depictions of Francis in this episode, there is also an interesting symbolism in that, of course, you know, because his father is a cloth merchant, right? So there are ways in which this is uh, even more viscerally a rejection of his father's wealth than any old stripping of one's nice clothing might be. Absolutely. And that's sort of those ideas that, you know, you as the father have paid for the upkeep mm-hmm. is expensive of, you know, horses. And I mean, in the case of Francis, you know, equipment to be, to be able to participate in this war mm-hmm. and united the aspiration of a merchant class father for his son to aspire to knighthood and nobility and his grandchildren to be nobility. Yeah. And then that sort of not just a rejection, but a like, I'm giving you back everything you have given to me symbolically mm-hmm. and publicly. Yeah. The, the severing of the kind of ending of the indebtedness as mm-hmm. a real gesture is, I mean, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a speech act in and of itself. A yes. Speech act, which is like really heartbreaking. And that makes mm-hmm. it everyone's laughing. Yeah. And the other thing actually that I will just note for listeners is that, of course, also just kind of keeping in mind the the wealth that is inherent in the objects of clothing, right? Mm-hmm. That in the Middle Ages, you, you know, you don't have like 45 t-shirts from H&M that each cost you $4. Uh, you have a relatively small number, you know, somebody, you know, even, you know, of his, somebody, this kind of wealthy person, right? He'd have a relatively kind of small number of objects that would be valuable. Like these are things that you could sell or pawn for a decent amount of money. And so thinking about, yeah, the clothing as objects of wealth in a way that most people's clothing are not today. And when they die, these are enumerated in accounts in great detail. Mm -hmm. And they are an important part of the inheritance. When I die, I expect with a little bit of luck, all my clothes are going to be given to, I don't know, the local good. Right. Like nobody, nobody wants this. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, but that they're, you know, they're showing up in wills. They're showing up in inventories of the wealth of households. They're showing up in a set in lists of dowry wealth yes. uh, that we see very kind of overt representations in medieval documents of the fact that these are high value objects. And so that really adds a richness here. I think that is perhaps even more striking for those of us who are aware of that aspect. They do a really good job with the clothes in general in this film. Yeah. Yeah, I think so too. He is now a beggar. And uh, I find it interesting that there's some amount of the like actually poor people who initially at least are just like really annoyed to which mm-hmm. I can't entirely blame them. And that he, at this point, it's like, you're you're just sort of like taking from the, from the overall pot, right? Like we're not getting an unlimited amount of charity. And you're this like rich boy who is, uh, you know, from their perspective, right? You know, you're this rich boy who is like play acting at being a pauper. And then there's those of us who like actually need this. And that really interestingly dovetails with some, some scholarship by who wrote Poverty and Riches, Armstrong, but also Lester Littles. Mm-hmm. Voluntary poverty and the profit economy. Yes. Whatever that's you know, about this idea, you get this division between the voluntary poor and the involuntary poor, mm-hmm. which 
as long as the involuntary poor are benefiting from it. But what happens when the voluntary poor, like the charity is funneled to them and instead of mm-hmm. supporting the poor as a whole, you get these sort of segregations between the voluntary and the voluntary poor. And when involuntary poor start using this to kind of found houses and university careers. And mm-hmm. so when they're pissed there, I I mean, that was gratifying as a, as a mm-hmm. card-carrying medievalist. Right. And just, you know, especially keeping in mind, of course, that especially as this becomes more established going forward, that from the perspective of a well-off person, you know, who is doing some deathbed charitable giving, perhaps, you might think that you're going to benefit more in terms of this being recognized as a meritorious act if you give to the voluntarily poor instead of the involuntarily poor. Absolutely. I mean, and once you get to some later Franciscan uh, literature, you have this amazing, like, Jesus saying, oh, anyone, you know, in your order is going to get directly to heaven. Uh, and then you have people like, is it Philip II of Spain, who's like, is buried, he's he's dressed in a Franciscan habit and dies in it and is buried in it because he literally... Tricking God. <laughs> right, tricking God, which is a really interesting sort of like, this is, you know, church officials are saying, no, this is not a thing, but it's this popular religion that mm-hmm. becomes a thing. Yeah. And really, I mean, and it, it, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't hurt to be, die and be buried in a brown habit. I mean. Yeah. But does, of course, hurt to, uh, you know, I mean, hurts other people to uh, die and, you know, give all your money to these Franciscans who might not really need the money instead of all of these impoverished people who might otherwise have gotten uh, more more of a kind of charitable bonus from so-and-so dying. Francesco's, yeah, not not doing too well. He's ill. Chiara's trying to tend him. He is uh, essentially kind of incorporating himself into the community of the impoverished increasingly, right? That there's this, uh, this uh, he's kind of visiting people. There's this woman whose infant has died because she ran out of milk. We see the leper again, who initially startles Kiara and who also uh, seems to want to kill himself, which is, you know, of, you know, to some extent, you know, given that kind of the extreme way, right, in which he is being treated is something not to mention, you know, pain and discomfort is, uh, you know, something that is understandable, if uh, obviously tragic. And that is, of course, a really important part of Francis' narrative. It's not enough that he's, you know, doing what a lot of other people are doing, which is giving charity to the poor and charity to the lepers. He's actually living with them. And I mean, a big part of Franciscan studies is this mm-hmm. solidarity with the poor, not just giving yes. charity and helping them, but actually living with them and living with the lepers. Mm-hmm. And that's the important part. There's the, the leper colonies. There's like three mm-hmm. leper colonies outside of Assisi at this time, like, and by leper colonies, like they're pretty small, like these huts. Um, yeah. He actually just seems to live with them and mm-hmm. possibly contracted leprosy too right yeah and so and you know and and we see that right like we see him living in this like you know mud encampment which gets essentially just just you know destroyed entirely in a bad rainstorm and that they are you know in the church praying and you know acknowledging that you know yeah our houses are flimsy and frail I also found it fascinating that when we have, I think it's Rufino, his friend, who's a notary, is trying to convince him at this point to uh, to come home and, you know, 
forget all of this stuff. He has this description where he says, in the city archives, these people don't exist. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that that phrase would have been actually spoken by a person in the like late 12th, mm-hmm. early 13th century. But as a historian, I absolutely love it because it's mm-hmm. absolutely true. I mean, this is the obviously, this is exactly the kind of sources that I work with are notarial registers, the kind of, you know, so in the contracts produced by people like Rufino in terms of who he is at this point in our narrative. And uh, yeah, you're, you're not getting, you're not seeing these people. These people are not showing up in these archi- in that kind of archival documentation. And it's interesting because where the poor typically show up is in, in records of charity. Yes. The charity of people donating, building poor houses, lists of, of charity in various ways, mm-hmm. poor relief. I mean, they also show up in hagiography, and particularly right. in the way that saints seek to be poor, absolute mm-hmm. comparative. Francis is with absolute poverty, um, and and sort of the role of the poor as a well, as Christ personified, um, uh-huh. and as recipients of miracles too. I mean, so that's uh, you know Sharon Farmer's book about uh, poverty in medieval Paris is that she's using as a window onto the lives of the poor the canonization records of Saint Louis, Louis the Ninth of France, exactly. and that we have yes, and that we have yeah, all of these poor people who are you know recording these miracles that have happened to them or that they have witnessed. And that their their witnessing is taken seriously because it's a miracle, mm-hmm. and they were they wouldn't be witnessing in court cases mm-hmm. because they they wouldn't be you know people of reputation. They mm-hmm. wouldn't be witnesses because nobody would want them as witnesses for economic transactions, even if they knew people who could do right. that. Right? But and they're also of- not involved in the economic transactions because they don't have any money. <laughs> but suddenly, when they're witnessing miracles, they have voices. Yeah. Is sort of a really like you as a poor person in the middle age, especially as a destitute poor person. Mm-hmm. You know, you your your space and your the way society gives you identity is through religion and through mm-hmm. you know what the poor represent, what they are, I mean, objects to for mm-hmm. that earn the rest salvation, objects of charity, and you know that's sort of an interesting. That, that this biopic is so hagiographical and yet it has that sort of notorial comment is just mm-hmm. the, such a I mean I should kind of wonder I wonder who wrote this script yes no I mean I, I find it so I find it so fascinating just because as I said it is like it's like such an interesting representation of like this experience of looking at notarial registers where mm-hmm. it, it you know it's it is to some extent an economically diverse population. It's far from just, you know, the wealthiest people in society or anything mm-hmm. like that. But, you know, even to say receive a loan, you have to, somebody has to think that that's an acceptable credit risk, mm-hmm. right? And so there's, you know, there are the people that we are seeing here are at a level of poverty where, yeah, they are, they are invisible and in precisely mm-hmm. the kinds of documents that Rufino is creating. So yeah, I just, I, yeah, I found it so interesting. But despite that line, we see that Rufino, uh, as well as uh, their other friend, uh, Pietro Catani, who at this point is a lawyer, are increasingly becoming tempted by Francis's model of voluntary poverty, which they kind of speak to him about. And he says, you know, that these are his expectations, that anyone who follows him must renounce all that they have. And, and they do. Yes, they, they do. And quite sort of monumentally as well. Mm-hmm. Like, way and you have all these people like including people who are not poor like just 
grabbing and yeah, just come into my house and take my stuff. And then somebody who shows up who's like, well, I know that, you know, he has really nice greyhounds. And that's what <laughs> yes. Francis is like, what are you doing here? And he's like, uh. So it, it's a really interesting sort of, it's very ostentatious, like, mm-hmm. and somebody actually says, well, what if they change their mind? Mm-hmm. And yeah. Francis is like, dude, whatever. Not my problem. <laughs> exactly, not my problem. Right. And this is the one scene which, uh, which seemed to some extent uh, sort of ungenerous to the, you know, poor or at least people of like somewhat lower socioeconomic strata in terms of like portraying them as a kind of grasping and greedy, including at some point, you know, to the point of violence where they're just sort of like ripping at their clothing. And it seems like they're basically like begging, like, please, I really have given you all I have. And there's, there's this kind of almost element of cruelty that was that was the that was to some extent I will say a kind of discordant uh, note to me in this film the uh, the hostility to which they responded to you know there not being more to take. Yes, this having been said, we have records of that. Mm-hmm. And this sort of ostentatious charity individuals like getting like almost violent and people mm-hmm. having to restore order. I think there's actually uh, one of the feasts that Louis the Ninth throws in one of his his biographies. There's like people get so out of sorts that I mean like violent that then there's mm-hmm. a shift in how this is done afterwards and stuff, which plays into those medieval ideas and mm-hmm. modern ideas of the poor as being uncivilized and uncouth mm-hmm. and like not fit for. And at the same time, there's this, oh, the poor or like the meek who will receive the whatever and fancy mm-hmm. for them. And they're like just ordinary people and they're real people. And at the same time, there's this sort of Right. And especially, of course, when we take into account, right, that, you know, there are sources, but that these are always constructed narratives Mm -hmm. and what kinds of things are being emphasized and what aren't. It certainly does, you know, sort of raise raise questions, right, about obviously both the, you know, in the medieval context, classism isn't quite the right word, but something along those lines. And certainly in, you know, the 1980s, you know, how is that showing up there? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is a movie that is made for a very specific audience. And that's, you know, people are going to go to movie theaters in the, in 89 and 90, right? Yeah. We are then seeing the, uh, the brotherhood grow that we have uh, Rufino and Pietro who have abandoned their solid upper middle class lifestyles. We see the, uh, the man who was actually the one who had received Francis's armor comes to find Francis and he too ends up becoming a Francisca or, you know, kind of joining, join, I guess not becoming a Franciscan is uh, anachronistic in precisely this context, but, uh, you know, joining this brotherhood surrounding Francis. Becomes one of Francis's posse of dudes. Yes. <laughs> there we go. They're adjusting to their life. There's a, there is this kind of episode that I think we mentioned briefly earlier with the lamb where it's like, oh, this, this poor notary is like, he does not want to kill this lamb. He is like, I was, I was not trained for this whole situation. And like, everyone's like, well, you do it. Or oh, you just like women, like here, let me. And then, and then nobody kills it, which I mean, they were vegetarian, but whatever. Right. So but yeah. To the no. extent that people were vegetarian at the time. But. Right. We also need to uh, find another opportunity for Mickey work to be, to be naked. We see him like running naked through the snow and nakedly building snowmen. Yes. And it's interesting because he's this, there's that moment when his friends find him and he sort of shows like, 
these snowmen that he's built and then he's like i have been tempted and then you're like oh was he like swimming in the snow naked because he was experiencing like the fires of lust or i, I don't quite know right. how but it was definitely naked Mickey Rourke rolling around in the snow. It was it was quite naked. And, you know, with, like, some snow artfully placed to disguise his penis. That's that's where we're at. Um, he wasn't dead in a mass grave, right? Because if he was dead right. in a grave, that would have been, like, dictable. Then that's fine. <laughs> and I can also see why in the context of this film, dead in a mass grave and just nudity as part of that is fine. At, like, implicit lust, like erect saint francis i could see why that would feel uh perhaps yeah. overly transgressive yeah i could see that too <laughs> fair enough yeah francesco instructs the brothers to travel and to preach yes that's right which he did yeah and uh rufino specifically is sent back to assisi and he's like i don't want to go there everybody knows me there i'll be embarrassed which the theological answer is yes the more embarrassed the better right but, uh, right exactly so it even kind of yeah um, adds to that by saying like oh we'll go naked they haven't they haven't seen you naked before it's it, it is painfully embarrassing not the nudity part i'm from finland for god's sake but like it is this going among his people and his mother is there and cry it is yeah the vicarious embarrassment and sort of like really francis did you have to put this poor notary through this it's i know especially because you know i don't necessarily have like extreme embarrassment around like nudity per se but being naked trying to give us in church and trying to give a speech in front of literally everybody you know that's a different, that's a different beast. And yeah, really just a like vicarious, like cringe embarrassment that we have watching this scene. Poor Rufino. Poor Rufino. But to everyone's great disappointment, when Francis steps in and starts peeping, speaking to the public, he does not strip. Right. He does not. He just, he, he grabs a painted crucifix, which, you know, is all, is, you know, that at least has some, you know, at least part nudity. But not the San Damiano cross again. No, still not. Still not. And says that it's easy to worship wooden images. They never suffer hunger or cold. And would you drive away a man who wants to become a saint? Essentially trying to kind of win this crowd over. Uh, he is he is not fully successful. I appreciate he's this. Successful. Yeah, he's like getting there. And then there and then there's like somebody who's like, you know, he's like, you know, saying like, blessed are, you know, Eugenia, the leper and, you know, kind of blessed is like so-and-so, you know, these poor people whom he knows. And then somebody kind of yell, you know, heckles like, blessed are the stupid fools like you. And this kind of sends the crowd into uh, going back to essentially just kind of mocking them and they're, they're dragged from the church, but they, you know, they get, they, they do win a few people over. Which win-win I suppose in many ways you get the embarrassment this was also heckled on the way to the crucifix Mm -hmm. and they're heckled imitation of Christ very solid solid imitatio Christi solid Chiara wants to fully join them Francesco and is uh not having it initially uh, nor are the others they think she can't handle it because she's had this pampered lifestyle unlike the rest of them, but, you know, she's a lady, so obviously she can handle it less than they can. All the pain and suffering oh, a yes. woman had to go through to mm-hmm. get the rule to be allowed to do her thing. Mm-hmm. 
into that like one conversation. Right. Especially because, uh, you know, and we're going to talk about more of this later, but it's like in the film, she's even allowed to like do the, you know, wandering in poverty thing in the film far more that, you know, like that nobody ever actually quite agreed to that one in light in her actual life. No. Yeah. Just kind of seeing, you know, these, these debates and the fact that it even, you know, it goes, you know, goes better for her in this film in terms of her getting what she wants than it actually went. But yeah, so that they're, you know, afraid of that. They're afraid that she'll be, you know, endangered, you know, raped or attacked on the road. Uh, there is this rape concern expressed that, you know, there's some, I don't know, romantic tension unacknowledged between her and Francis since, you know, they're both, they're both very pretty people. And yeah, I mean, and of course that hasn't at all been built in the beginning of the film. Uh, there's a lot of smoldering looks from Francis. Right. Shy curious flirty looks from Chiara so um if those brothers had been paying attention to the first part yeah that makes a lot of sense yeah no you you can't uh, that's the part you know the other parts I'm like yeah you're all right your misogyny is showing but that one I'm like I, yeah no that's a legit concern to express in this context but she she cuts her hair she joins the brothers also interesting choice in that very quickly we actually see this like oh, well, they were right at least about the endangered part, right? That we have this episode in which she gets Mm -hmm. kind of menaced by this group of men who are basically Mm -hmm. like, well, your family is looking for you. So we're going to try and take you and, you know, take you back. We're also, maybe we won't take you back. Maybe we'll just rape you. Mm -hmm. Which totally echoes medieval fears as well. And it certainly echoes medieval fears, but it's just so irritating in this film that they're like, well, what if? And it's like, come on guys. And then it's like, eh, there we go. Look, look, see, it's happening. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, yeah. But then, so, of yeah, course, then... threats of violence in her actual biography. There's the threats of violence mm-hmm. from family members that mm-hmm. show up. Yeah. Uh, in the movie, they're not as violent. Of course, they're really violent in her biography. Then, when they come for her sister, mm-hmm. um, Jillian Algren, who's a theologian and historian, has a lot to say about the domestic violence that the story of mm-hmm. Claire and her sister show us in medieval noble households. But we don't see quite that. They just show up and Clara's like, you know, don't bother other people. I'm here. And then she pulls off her hood and it's like, she's cut her hair, which means she's ineligible to be married. And her value to her family has just like, poof, disappeared. Bye. Handy. Handy. Very handy. So convenient that you can, you know, get out of that just by a little little shop. And to what extent, I mean, that is a real thing. And to what extent Mm -hmm. she's made this official vow. And if we... right interfere with this then right I mean especially with it being a vow that's you know a relatively you know that is like that all of this you know is there's there's this kind of public element to something for all of this right and so like the idea that you know this is something that's you know I mean you could you could see plenty of people who would be you know eligible matches being like I don't want to marry this person who yeah. you know has taken vows like that seems problematic I mean right absolutely problematic yeah, and so, you know, we, we have the kind of brief episode of her family bothering her, and then they, they give up. But meanwhile, we are uh, getting concerns around the possible scandal associated with the order. And uh, Francis is told that he, he needs to get some, some papal approval. He goes Which, to see my, my, my good buddy, Innocent III. Uh, my there. favorite historical pope! You're right. He's, uh, you know, he, he is simultaneously my favorite and my least favorite Pope and that I 
have like a deep like love and fascination for Innocent the Third, and I really love teaching Innocent the Third, but also like I really love teaching Innocent the Third because I think like eighty percent of what Innocent the Third did like was awful. So, it's a fascinating, fascinating. Yeah, Innocent the Third is fascinating, and I could talk a lot about Innocent the Third. Yes, the most fascinating thing about Innocent the Third in this movie is his fascination for lemons, but. Yeah, I I don't know what's with the lemons, but there's this whole weird thing that it's like he's he's living on lemons and he's like bitter like the lemons. And it's a real choice. It's a real choice. My hypothesis, um, you said that you found this lemon episode in, in yes. Sabatier's biography. Now, Sabatier's, yes. do not use Sabatier's biography of Francis. Like, do not, kids, do not do this. Right. This is an outdated, very problematic in various ways. If you are like 19th century, by the way, you know, not anything, neither medieval nor recent. Uh, No, there is like, I mean, it has its redeeming qualities and like, it's fascinating to see how biographies have developed and how ideas got Mm -hmm. written. But I wonder if this was the biography that this movie was based on. My assumption, since that's the, like, that was like the only thing that I was coming up with, my guess would be that that was at least a source for the film, if not necessarily the only source. I do think that that was probably a major source. I'm thinking about, I don't know the state of biographies in Italian and German. Mm -hmm. There was not a whole lot of English biographies. Right. Diana Cavani, una italiana, but you know, there's, they would make sense. They would use Sabatier. This having been said, they do have nuances in this movie mm-hmm. that not have. Right, and I, I would, I would assume that they, you know, read, you know, in in trans. I, I don't know exactly, you know, what what got was available when, but I would assume that they read in translation uh, some of some of the the medieval vitae. Yeah, absolutely. They would have read yeah. um, Little Flowers of Saint Francis, which is not really a biography. They would have had access to Thomas of Salona, an absolute. Yeah. 85% the official biography from uh, from the um, 1260s by Bonaventure mm-hmm. which is the official right. that is sort of commissioned by the Franciscans to the mm-hmm. point this is the official biography and other biographies need not exist um, for you so that's that that would also be and I could totally see that as well as, as yeah um, much more theologically sophisticated than Sabah yes yeah uh, so but yeah so my guess yeah my guess is that yeah I think you know, I think it seems like from what you have said about Sabatier, which like I was not super familiar with and did not read in full, I just kind of came across this reference about the lemons, thanks in part because of, well, it might it might not be an ideal source, but it is entirely available uh, on like Project Gutenberg because it's, you know, mm-hmm. open, fully open access that, you know, that like was what, you know, turned up when I was kind of trying to do some searches on this lemon situation. Yeah, I found um, like weird uh, like I should say weird but sort of like websites that are not professional you know right right about innocent the third and lemons without any source references I mean we're both fascinated by this whole lemon thing because yeah he's eating all these lemons and he's like I've become as sour and bitter as the lemon itself like which I mean frankly third you brought some of that on yourself Mr. Sour Puss Administrator dude which is one of the reasons right. because I have a passion for administrations and taxes in mm-hmm. the political and you know I would love to teach a course on like the history of bureaucracy and it would be only me and like one business group in that right and yeah and I I simultaneously I'm like oh I like I I appreciate this clearly like brilliant like legal and administrative and bureaucratic mind and at the same time it's like oh I 
I taught some of the fourth letter and council material today. I got to teach specifically because I'm teaching a Jewish history mm-hmm. survey, the bits about how he, you know, uh, says like, we should have the Jews wear some kind of distinguishing mark to differentiate them from Christians. And uh, also totally historically, you know, would go well at that time and later. Yep. But- Yep. And also, uh, did, did you know, did you know who's oppressing who? It's actually that the, the Jews are oppressing the Christians with their immoderate usury. That, that's how the, the axis of oppression is going. It's, I'm pretty sure it's that the Jews are oppressing the Christians. I'm pretty sure it's that. <laughs> that sounds a little bit like it's reminding me of the whole, this professor is oppressing me because I earned a D in the class. And, you know, <laughs> me, I mean, what do you mean I should have handed in assignments? I mean, to be the other thing it kind of reminds me of is when like, you know, Amy Coney Barrett's going before uh, the, you know, in her Senate confirmation hearing and she's like, I'm being oppressed because I'm a Christian. I'm like, 95% of the people in that room are Christians. Like, you're fine. You're fine. That's a, that's a, that's a pretty conservative estimate, I'd say. But, Mm, you know, know, some people claim they're Christian when clearly they're not. And, you know, that, I think that that your estimate gives some room for that. I think that's actually there, there, there you go. There you go. But yeah, no, it's like, you're, I'm, I'm pretty sure like you're the person, you're the people like running things and that you are not, you're not the, the one oh, who's wait. oppressed. Uh, Sunday mm. is routinely the day stores are closed. Oh, 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 nobody ever questions if you take Christmas and Easter nope. off. Christians are totally, mm. yes. Mm-hmm. Christians, so oppressed. I mean, like. Now and in the Middle Ages. I mean, you know, how by the like, Jews. Christian schools and universities are there, for example, I don't know, in this country compared to like others. I mean, there's interesting. Is Just really interesting. We have Hebrew Union College down the street, and how many, four, five Catholic and other <laughs> universities in greater, in the tri state area? Hmm. Interesting. Really yeah. interesting. Also really interesting how, you know, the Christianity gets to be used to justify laws that are, you know, treating parents of trans kids like they're abusing their children for allowing them to live as their actual gender. Even though, isn't it one of the greatest trans moments? Isn't like God incarnates in female flesh? And so essentially one of the great trans moments in history is when out of female flesh, Mary is incarnated male Jesus. I don't think they understand their religion that well. No, probably. <laughs> I mean, I'm just theology. Yes. Yeah. No, I mean, uh, and it's something I. Theory, the yeah. woman doesn't provide anything. She's just an oven, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yet God incarnates through female flesh because that's mm-hmm. all there is. Mm-hmm. But I mean, and I understand, of course, that I can't take medieval theology and like superimpose that on like, I don't know, Texas evangelicals. <laughs> anyway, these are these things that I like to think about at two o'clock in the morning when, you know, anyway. Innocent yes. the third. the third. Yeah. Only Pope, medieval Pope that comes as an action figure. I really want the Pope Innocent the third action figure. <laughs> Very poor quality packaging. I've only had that thing for 10 years and it's like coming apart. Oh, that's sad. Well, I might take him out of his packaging. Uh, I might just let him too. let him live free with his like super that that was innocent, you know, free innocent. Free Willie, free innocent. He comes with his 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 superpowers excommunication. He comes with a little excommunication. Right. Yes. Sons of Hoffenstaufen, kiss my donkey. And the packaging is handy because you can kind of have a little 
translation of the Latin on the package Aww. for the students when you pass it around. Nice. Nice. <laughs> yeah. No, uh, as I said, I, I really want an innocent action figure. But yes, so first of all, there's this, it's, it's such an interesting scene. I actually really love this scene that like, so first, like they keep, they're coming in and everybody keeps being like, uh, no, like that, the, you, you, the poppers go through the back entrance and they're like, no, 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 like they're not poppers. They just look like poppers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so like they let them through and uh, they're, you know, and the Pope is kind of like glowering at them as being like, what do you want to yell at us about? Everybody wants to yell at Rome about something. And they're like, nope, we just want to live according to the gospel. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, they start trying to like explain what they mean they're like yeah we and like i think it's one of the other cardinals he's like uh we know the gospel thank you i love that yeah (laughs) and there's a this kind of interesting dynamic here i would say in that simultaneously they seem like they kind of hate this guy but also like they're kind of intrigued Mm -hmm. which is i don't know kind of tries well and i think it's also like in many ways there's sort of an echo to what's actually going on is one of the problems right. in his face is heresy. And you have people who are doing pretty much exactly what he's mm-hmm. doing that are also criticizing the church. And then you have a dude who shows up and is basically like, we just want to do this thing and like be hundred percent obedient to the church. I mean, it's a really strategic yep. understanding and yes. benefits the church to embrace mm-hmm. and the Franciscan mission and mission. Right. Because, yeah, and of course, you know, and then there's, you know, say the Waldensians, where if you, you know, read about Peter Waldo, he's, he doesn't seem that different from Francis, except for the set, you know, being more overtly critical of the church aspect. And the Pope is like, you can't preach. And then he's like, neener, neener, neener. I'm going like, to you. I'll yeah, preach if I want to. English translation of the Chronicle of Lyon is says that inveys against people, you know, criticize. Mm-hmm yells at people for being horrible sinful people and then of course you know in in um franciscan literature and francis writes like if a franciscan brother comes across a priest they should like get on the ground and kiss the horses the horse that the priest is riding on that horse's hooves to debase themselves in front of the authority Mm -hmm. of the church that's a pretty big difference yep they do end up receiving this blessing that they have requested Mm -hmm. and uh meanwhile the appeal of the brotherhood grows that people from many, many countries arrive and uh, gather for Pentecost. And I do really like that we have this kind of international group of brothers and that they are communicating with Francis in like mediocre Latin. It's so great. Yes. <laughs> it's my favorite. You know, yes. It's, 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 yeah, that's heartwarming. Yeah. Yeah. I really like that. <laughs> You know, that's the kind of, you know, delight, the, you know, the kind of good part of the growth of the brotherhood. But we also start to see the downsides of the growth of the brotherhood. It seems that there is conflict in paradise. Uh, we have, on the one hand, you know, there's the brothers who, like, want to, you know, live in a house like people. And meanwhile, we have Francesco demolishing the house. Mm-hmm. We've got this cardinal who's like, can, can, can you come down and stop destroying this house? And, like, talk to the Pope's envoy. Which is a nice distraction. And this is one of the things that I like about this movie a lot is that there is within, during Francis's lifetime, there's a split in the brotherhood where some are like literalists, like, no, nakedly follow the naked Christ. And Mm -hmm. others like, well, you know, define poverty and (laughs) 
you get these sort of like differences and France is very suspicious and sort of like, you know, Franciscans should not educate themselves and, and you know, within a generation mm-hmm. Franciscans are studying and, and that sort of- Franciscans are one of the orders most associated with like the university system. Absolutely. And, and you know, he goes on this crusade, which is alluded to in the movie, but we don't actually get to see that. And he comes back and like the shit has fallen apart. And you have this sort of like, you have two, we have two rules of Francis of Assisi. And the second one kind of enumerates on poverty and partially laxes it. Like, you know, you're allowed to have shoes, especially like, I mean, I imagine if you're like doing preaching in Germany, like, yes, you need shoes in ways that you don't in, I don't know, say Italy. I just um, love the idea, right? Of this being like, this is a big concession. Like, ugh, fine. We can have shoes. If you, you really can- need them, you can have shoes. Okay. Are you happy now? And there's sort of partially, when you compare these two rules, the big thing is poverty. And clearly mm-hmm. there's problems in poverty paradise that's going on. Right. This oh, right. What, absolutely. This is actually what my students are analyzing on Wednesday. Mm-hmm. Um, right. That's sort of a big part of, of the problem. And that's one of the things I like about the movie is that we think of Francis as this tree-hugging nature saint, but the medieval Francis was a poverty saint. I mean, that's what yes. partially right. society, especially in America, and there's a really interesting book that talks about this, have sort of sanitized, depoveritized Francis. Mm-hmm. And in ways, like the nature saint, even, I mean, it's not, they're not pulling it out of their hat, right? Like there's a reason right. associated with nature, but this poverty aspect, but then it's sanitized because glorifying poverty in any way is so problematic in mm-hmm. capitalist societies, but especially the neoliberal capitalists. Yes. And so, but I love that Francis in this movie, Francesco is a poverty dude. Yes. Seeing how that is a problem in the order already during his lifetime. And, you know, that dude with the sort of little bit longer hair, that's Brother Elias. Like, that is mm-hmm. Brother Elias, who's like low key famous in people who like uh-huh. know him about Francis as a scholar. So, yeah. And, and also, I think the other thing that I think is interesting that the film doesn't shy away from is that, I mean, the other way in which he's sanitized, right, is that it's this very like, Oh, you know, you you go to church and you like bring your cat and St. Francis like blesses your cat and he's just this like nice guy. Like he's like the nice saint. He's kind of not the nice saint. He is in some ways, you know, aggressive and uncompromising. He would have been, I'm sure, an extremely difficult person to be regularly interacting with and an extremely difficult person to be, you know, shaping a, you know, your rule. And I, and I do have some sympathy for him at this big, you know, to the, like, if you don't like it, like leave, nobody's making you do this, like go do your own thing. And Um, his brothers are like, no, you can't write a rule that that won't work for us. If you write a rule that's too harsh, you're the only one following. So there's, they want to be part of this, but they want him to compromise. And right his last testament his testament is basically one like you you have to live poverty and he's in his last i mean he's called the testament it's not necessarily his actually mm-hmm. last oh, right but it's his testament he's like no dudes you have to follow this rule and in many ways i think about you know we think about jesus as this like you know the dude that's gonna like i don't know walks around carrying lambs but jesus is also the dude that comes into the temple and like destroys people's private right, like fuck so, shit up orders and stuff, you know like we like these sanitized mm-hmm. you know little birds tweeting the disney we like the disney princess disney francis yeah disney princess francis disney princess francis disney princess jesus i mean mm-hmm. we like we don't like the ones that make us feel uncomfortable and yeah on a on a roof throwing tiles around and like mm-hmm 
pulling weird stunts, like appointing Rufino as the minister general. And like, mm-hmm. we, this is not the, this is not who we want Francis to be. That's, right. This is not the person who's going to look good as my bird mm-hmm. in the garden. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah, and you know, and he's and he is not the person, right? That they, I mean, that also like we see all of these people who want the, I don't know exactly, you know, the the prestige associated with this connection, certainly, and with the figure of Francis, but they don't really want to. They want to be like, like they want to imitate Francis just like a little bit. Yeah, like they don't want to, like, you know, like they are like to be like we would have like gestures toward the imitation of francis we don't want to like full-on imitate francis francis liked only the parts of francis that i like and like if i could like only do that like a few days a week that would be great yeah it's like i'm gonna like kind of be poor but i'm also like you know i'm gonna live in a house and wear shoes and like eat some normal like couple of meals a day like and you have that wonderful scene towards the end of the movie but i'm gonna jump the gun a little bit and we get back to mm-hmm. they've gotten francis to write school and then the franciscans are like there's kind of debating this. Like, absolutely not. they're sitting on the table and they're all eating grapes and mm-hmm. and it's like yes and then and i'm just like i love that here they're in a house that has been built for them and they're eating this like snack food like mm-hmm. you know fruits and cheeses and things as they're debating this rule and that is such a beautiful capturing of this of course you know spoiler alert during the course of the 13th century into the 14th century you have this whole also spout but use of the poor controversy where they basically the end result is that you have institutional wealth but individual poverty and by the way it's heresy to claim that jesus was totally poor right and this is of course going forward right one of the main conflicts that there are different essentially branches of the franciscans and there is a branch of the franciscans who are essentially treated as heretics by the church because they're not willing to compromise on the whole poverty thing that whole spirituals thing you know it's Mm -hmm. and they're also critical of the wealth of the church in a way that francis himself was not absolutely not and that is interesting that whole like discourse on poverty growing out and being fueled by that and there's yeah you know argument to be made jillian algren makes that uh where she talks about how you know claire of assisi is the one who keeps the franciscan dream of poverty alive Mm -hmm. yes until after she dies that things kind of really deviate from francis's and claire's vision Mm -hmm. and that's also an interesting i really feel like if there's one message that one should get from this movie is like francis is not the tree hugger saint he's not the yes he is the radical solidarity with the poor saint yeah yeah that that is somehow i think that should be uncomfortable for us mm-hmm. it should be uncomfortable for us as modern people who yeah uh, any of us charity is ostentatious you know is it mm-hmm. really, i don't post it on facebook hashtag i stand with ukraine right mm-hmm. but i'm going to complain about gas prices and all these various things like that ostentatious charity and you know tree cutting is supposed to sort of a unpleasant you know you see francis the stores on his face, presumably emulating leprosy, are getting worse and worse during this mm-hmm. thing. His eyesight is getting worse. His mental health gets like worse. Yes. 
and he is fighting tooth and nail for what he essentially views as his life, which is right. And it's life in this life, but also life in the next, the beloved. Yeah. Yeah. Um, How important that is. And at some point, Claire even says, you know, oh, I saw him when he was really ill. Mm -hmm. This idea of I saw him as, you know, he loved Jesus so much. He became like him. What can I ever love that much? And I think that that... Well, which is so interesting because she is presented, right, as being like, as like another Francis. Yeah. And so it's like she, I, I found that just interesting as like the, as like being the end note, because it's like she did, in mm-hmm. fact. Yeah. And arguably, I mean, she might have had a, you know, without her, we would not have Franciscans. So that's also yeah. something she did not get enough credit for. Very true. Did I jump the gun here now? Sorry about that. I, I mean, you know, not that I feel like, you know, we basically like, we kind of just did the end, but I'll just say the only things I wanted to kind of note that we skipped is that we do have a couple of uh, kind of memorable deaths. We see Francis's father dies and I actually find it kind of sweet that he never changed the will and disinherited Francis, even though, you know, I guess that just means that like all of his stuff is going to the poor now, but. In the movie, you know, they presumably all go to the poor, but in real life, they go to Francis's siblings, but you know. Right, which, you know. Honestly, like kind of good, kind of good for them. Like Francis doesn't want that. Like Francis doesn't even want it. Like that's fine. But in this movie where he like doesn't, where like they don't have, he doesn't have any siblings. I find it kind of nice that his father was like, you know, still like, like never actually changed the will. Innocent also uh, very inconveniently dies because there's this whole bit. So like they have, you know, Francis writes his rule. The brothers, or at least a group of the brothers are like, absolutely not. Like we're, we're absolutely not doing this. They burn the copy, that copy, and start writing their own version. And then they're like, all right, we're just going to do it again. And now we're going to take it directly to the Pope, uh, who has inconveniently died. And he's inconveniently died, and his body has been left in the church in Perugia. And the papal retinue is like hoofing it back to Rome, mm-hmm. presumably because they for the election. But they leave the body, and then you have like Francesco. And uh, uh, and Leone, who they call, you know, Fratello Leo, uh, Leone, there, they, uh, who's like famous for a variety of mm-hmm. reasons. He's like the only witness to the stigmata, quote unquote, witness, as he is in the movie. But they like lift him up and put him like on the altar, and it's like the Pope has just died. Like there, nobody's leaving his body. Like just derelict. <laughs> Where they're just I like do. she's on the floor Francesco and Leone have to like pick him up and put him not literally on the ground right right and he's got like one shoe on and you're like it's like it's just like he like died and they're just like we're gonna run we're gonna just take off leave the boat where he lays it, it's very weird that is like <laughs> for me by far <laughs> it's like they, they, they would have brought him back like to Rome or something. Yeah. It's, hmm. Hi. Hi, Kitty. Hi, Kitty. You know that's wrong. You know that's wrong, that they would have taken better care of the papal corpse. Yeah, he knows they would have taken better care of the papal corpse. Yeah. And I think the final note is uh, that we, of course, see Francis's receipt of the stigmata. Of course, a quite famous episode that he is out praying in the woods and asking for God to speak to him. And he, he gets his, he gets his wish. He, uh, how the, the wounds of Christ are marked upon his body. And we don't know how that happens. In general, this movie really steers away from the supernatural. Yes. God's voice, even though Francis talks a lot about hearing God's voice. We never hear it. Right. 
I can't hear him anymore. We never hear that. He see any of the miracles attributed to him. And he's out there sort of on, on Mount Laverna having this sort of crisis of faith and he wakes up. And it's also like interesting. He's a sick, sick man. And yes, then, too, he's clearly yes. like this. This man is not well, and now yeah, he is bleeding excessively from multiple wounds. Like this seems not great. And then he gets a stigmata, and he's so happy because, of course, he realizes, mm-hmm. and he seems much healthier and better after that. And I think that's sort of an interesting moment as well. And we, what well, the kind of hint that we see is, so Leo is brother Leo, who's like famous as part of this whole story, is out there in the mountains, and there's these birds that kind of fly off. Plop, 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 plop. And I'm thinking, oh, that's the stigmata. Because there's the, the mm-hmm. that there's a seraph that appears that has uh six pairs of um uh, three pairs of wings, so six wings, which Bonaventure, the official biographer from the <laughs> gives this whole theological explanation for that one, which is kind of fascinating. Well, others do too, but anyway, that's my favorite one. And and that sort of of course for him it's a validation when mm-hmm. he's people. I'm reading it in this sort of from the spirituals, the spiritual Franciscan right. condemned for heresy. But this idea of the stigmata are validate Francis's vision. Yes. Francis's vision of how to live in solidarity with the poor and in poverty. And, mm-hmm. and I feel like that is sort of, I'm reading that spiritual interpretation of the stigmata. Because mm-hmm. of course, miracles, miracles are signs from God right dense idiots who can't figure out who are holy and so god all these miracles through people to convey to us that somebody is holy and yeah. so in validating in giving the stigmata yes it's like giving francis this whole like second christ yada yada image but it's also a validation of his vision uh, uh-huh. from a spiritual perspective from the right. non-spirituals it's just like oh he was so holy he's the second christ Alter Christ. right right and the other thing, of course, that I uh, do think it's worth noting in terms of really kind of seeing, right, that this is like, he's not old, but he is like not a well man. Mm-hmm. I do think it is really interesting to kind of think about the impact that certain kinds of intense saintly lifestyles have on the body. I mean, you know, this this like, this guy died yeah. when he was like 45. And, you know, and uh, as, as we all know, and as I have told, I've said many times in this podcast, right, the idea that everybody in the Middle Ages died at 40 is fundamentally wrong. We have an average lifespan that's dramatically brought down by really high infant mortality. If you make it past the age of five, you have a good chance of making mm-hmm. it into, you know, your 70s or something. So, you know, like the fact that he dies at 45, like that is not normal for somebody who, you know, you know, of his, you know, kind of of his situation, like he, uh, he, if he had not made some of the life choices that he made, he probably could have lived a much longer life. You know, you can also very much say that of somebody like Catherine of Siena, where, uh, you know, living on the Eucharist is maybe not the best uh, nutritional decision. Maybe, not, right? And I think that that is, I mean, he's living with the lepers. He had got contracts with painful eye disease. You know, they, they, they exhumed his skeleton and did a bunch of tests, you know, like he was a dude who was really ill. Which like, and, makes sense given like that he's, uh, you know, he's like living out in the open. He's spending, it's, you know, a lot of time with like very ill people. He is not, not eating well, well, right? Like, yeah, no, like this had a dramatic impact. I mean, I think it is interesting that like the stigmata is obviously the kind of spiritual representation of that, but it's also interesting to think about the ways in which like he 
transformed his body into one marked by suffering and also like a lot of other very literal and real ways, which, you know, it again probably explain why he died in his mid forties. And of course, for me, in many ways, I mean, in a society and culture, we do everything to avoid pain. I mean, that's one of the reasons mm-hmm. we have this incredible opioid crisis is because we avoid pain. And I'm not mm-hmm. saying always just suck it up, but I feel like when you're being subscribed like painkillers left, mm-hmm. right, and center, as opposed to trying to figure out symptoms, why mm-hmm. we are in pain, it's really alien for us to understand a society that embraces suffering and pain. Mm-hmm. Pain, physical suffering has theological, medical meaning. Mm-hmm. You know, if I can take my, you know, I don't know, I have tendinosis, and if I can take that as, okay, that's suffering and that's pain, and when I feel this pain, I can make that a meditation of Christ, a meditation of the suffering Christ field felt for the salvation of me personally. Mm-hmm. And that's great meaning and being mm-hmm. ill and, and suffering. I mean, that is a goal in and of itself for many of these, these yes. medieval saints. Self-inflicted suffering, hair shirts, mm-hmm. self-isolation, all of this has a great spiritual meaning. And so I think that that's for somebody like, and of course, the suffering and the pain from the stigmata themselves. I mean, these are not mm-hmm. free. That's sometimes they're portrayed in modern culture as these sort of like, Oh, they're just the marks of Christ. Do, 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 do. But they're not supposed to be painful. Right. They're not like little drawings of the wounds of Christ. They are wounds. They are painful and they are constantly bleeding and they are suffering. They are the wounds which are the same as like the wounds of this person who died and was resurrected. And this is, you know, I mean, we were talking about this, I think before we started properly recording, but this is really something that, you know, is is shocking for a lot of people today. I find, you know, my students find a lot of aspects of medieval mysticism incredibly jarring and disturbing. Maybe we yeah. should. And people yeah. in the Middle East, even though it was not alien, certainly did. It's also interesting. Right. Before, Andre Boucher has an article about, uh, about the stigmata and its detractors. And there's some other scholarship on mm-hmm. Francis is not the first one with the stigmata, likely the first one for whom the narrative is not either fraud or self-inflicted. But this idea yes. of self-inflict stigmata as a, as a form of self-inflicted suffering, mm-hmm. that raced after this that's no longer that starts to be like I can't be sit here with my scissors and like make the stigmata for myself as a devotional activity after Francis in the same way that one could before because mm-hmm. then it becomes this sort of then it's you know it, it the, the accusations of fraud is much bigger mm-hmm. but before, hair shirts and wrapping chains around yourself and various mm-hmm. other you know putting uh, thistles under your clothes and you know other fascinating things that you can do to create suffering speaks to sort of if you can't imitate christ and self-inflicted stigmata there's other ways to do this i'm not Mm -hmm. sure what the point of this was but here we are right right and that it has you know well i mean it connects you to christ right that you uh, by by imitating christ you connect with christ I think that is, we've kind of gotten through through the film and then some. And so we've already kind of touched on some of these things, but uh, just to kind of bring up a few, a few other little things for the Vera at Falso, the, uh, what they got right and wrong before we get into uh, our deep dive into uh, other things to say about Francis. 
So I wanted to make a few notes about uh, kind of art and architecture, one being just that, so we do not have this very famous crucifix, but the crucifixes I think do plausibly look at least like, I don't know, early 13th century, which yeah. mm-hmm. close enough. So props. They're not devices. They are human Christ, they're suffering Christ, mm-hmm. they're the artistic um, painted wood cross as opposed to yes. statues hung on crosses, which, you know, are going to become mm-hmm. more. Right. And they're, uh, and they're, and so they're kind of the midpoint of suffering, right? Like they're clearly suffering. They sort of, you know, don't look very happy, but they're also not the like weird, like, let me add an ocean of blood uh, <laughs> versions. So uh, yeah, we're at, we're at, yeah, this kind of midpoint, visually speaking, of the suffering Christ. They fit, fit well into the architecture. The clothing mm-hmm. is so often, you know, medieval stuff. I think it's become maybe a little bit more nuanced, but so often, yeah. you know what? We'll just do 15th and 16th century. And that's right. You know, they're actually like Chiara's clothes in particular, those sort of long, shapeless mm-hmm. dresses that, I mean, shapeless, you, you know, you have the fitted fancy dresses. Yeah. That but I mean, I do feel like they do a shockingly good job. They should be more yeah. color, but you know, the nobility does have right. more mm-hmm. in their clothing and so forth. So yeah. Yeah, they do have something of a distinction, right? Where we see some amount of kind of bright colors being worn by the nobility and, you know, more kind of homespun brown and tan fabrics worn by the people who are very poor, which does, I think, make sense. I'd say to some extent, like kind of the most discordant note is the fact that we do have this, we have these things that sort of look like, yes, they're, you know, late 12th or 13th or early 13th century, but that they're like worn in the way that something from that period is worn today and not like nicely brand new in the way that it would be in, you know, Francis's lifetime. Yeah. The, the fresco of Innocent III, which is clearly a fresco of Innocent III. Right. And it's like, he is the current Pope. And this thing is like, this thing has been a hard hit. (laughs) It's like, okay. It's like, this thing is like, at best, like 10 years old. It's like, so, and like, we didn't actually know this, but in like the 13th century, there was this whole like faux vintage look that was like, (laughs) that they're trying to, I'm sorry. (laughs) Yeah, like that is absolutely what this like vibe is, is that it's like, you know, like, let's like paint some fake weathering on this. It's like, okay. Distress always like art and other things. Right. So, you know, so that's obviously silly, but, you know, I think there's a lot of things that it does well with material culture. I like the use of Latin in the film. I appreciate the at least kind of vague reference to the importance of like notarial culture and urban bureaucracy. I wanted to, before we quite get into Francis, to make a couple of notes about Chiara, and then that'll kind of lead things in. So first of all, I do think it is an interesting choice to use, like that it actually refers to her as, you know, Chiara Alfreduccio. So, you know, refers to her by her birth name throughout. I think it's an interesting choice. And I kind of like that they didn't go with the sort of more obvious, like saying like Clara or Claire, that would have been perhaps more familiar to a modern audience. Of course, the whole movie is named Francesco, which is yes. You know, of course, his name. I mean, Pietro di Bernardone, but then he's called Francesco because of this right. connection and other things. But I think that that kind of echoes. But I wonder, you know, which choice became came first. I mean, Chiara mm-hmm. or Francesco? And right. So there's sort of My guess is Francesco, that. since that's the name of the movie. But well, yeah, I mean, because but they could have called it Francis. True. True. And they're calling it Francesco, and so I think that that's. But yeah, I agree. I like that. I also have to give them props 
that the age difference is almost precisely correct. That I googled this uh, in terms of that uh, the different the age difference between Francesco and Chiara is seems to like be you know probably about 12, 13 years, and uh, Mickey Burke is fourteen years older than Helena Bonham Carter. Mm-hmm. So yeah, as I you know props like especially because I feel like it's so common that they're like these people are supposed to be the same age, and yet we are going to hire a fifty year old man and a thirty year old woman, and they're the same age, right? People buy that. Right. I feel like that's so common that I appreciate the uh, the correctness overall in here. There are, however, a number of uh, you know choices that are that do seem like they're departing to some extent from what I understand. So first is that, as I said, unless I've missed something, I don't think there is any direct evidence that they were kind of in communication and making eyes at one another before Francis's conversion. I'm not aware of any evidence to that. Yeah. It's when Francis, you know, starts his, his journey. Right. Happens. And by all accounts, my understanding is that that Chiara was very pious. And so being like, hello, there's this dude who's doing this very Christocentric, Christomimetic thing would have been interesting to somebody. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, Mm, yeah so that I thought it made sense but just worth noting that it's something that is uh, an interpolation for the film the thing that to some extent bothered me more is that the film I would say kind of ultimately ends up giving Francis and others I think more credit than they deserve in terms of having the kind of flexibility on gender roles to allow her to fully live with the brothers and wander in poverty which nobody was ever actually saying yes to for her no and this is i mean that actually that whole relationship between francis and and claire and how that works uh, and sort of claire gets on one way a lot more agency and a lot more mm-hmm. space here than even traditional scholarship it's only in the last like well in the 2000s that there's actually been really like attention to what's going on there in ways and in many ways it's funny to say, given in certain ways how marginalized she is in this story, mm-hmm. how central she is compared to most stories of right. Francis. And this story of, you know, oh, Francis creates this female order as opposed to Claire creates it. She fights right. hard for it. She right. fights tooth and nail for, you know, the privilege of poverty. And so... Mm-hmm. And she gets a rule from Francis, but, like, she begs for a rule from Francis. Like... <laughs> You know, to I, and, and the question for me is: To what extent is it from Francis, and to what extent mm. and gets it like right. rubber stamped? By right. Him? Also, it's, very good point. And but this, like, you know, when they have that scene where she's sort of wandering in the roads and she wants to mm-hmm. live, I'm like, you know, if only you know, she fights yeah. the, the the successor of Innocent the Third, Tooth and Nail. And there's some really interesting scholarship: Catherine Mooney, Joe Mueller, and also a shout out to mm-hmm. Julian Aldred, who've been working on on Claire and. Claire's absolutely Francis doesn't outline any kind of spirituality he just like does his things it's It's very practical right very practical I mean you know you see all these quotes the whole like oh spoiler alert everyone the piece make me an instrument of your piece not written by Francis (laughs) time in print in the early 1900s we literally none of the texts that we have from Francis of Assisi contain this prayer this is from 19, early 1900s. The first time it's attributed, I think, to Francis of Assisi is in the interwar period between mm-hmm. first and So when you see Tchotchkes that have the peace prayer, Francis, 
Lord, make me an instrument of your purpose. First of all, they're too self-centered to be Francis. And second of all, the whole evidence thing. But what actually you do have on tchotchkes and, you know, mugs and whatever, you know, they say things like preach the gospel at all times when necessary, use words. That is a very Franciscan. Mm-hmm. This actual idea of Franciscan spirituality, which is a real thing and still is today, that is articulated by Claire. Mm-hmm. And so that's, you know, Francis, Francis starts this, I mean, what he, to what extent is what he's doing really new, considering there's all these heretics running around doing, oh, right. considering the whole imitation of Christ, all these things. And what he does that is new is he's not secluded in a monastery to say, right. living in the world. And she wants that. Mm-hmm. And nobody is, nobody is ever up to give that for her. Like there is this really very, very significant gender divide in terms of, you know, Francis doing this situation, like there are aspects of it that are questionable, but yeah, okay, you group of men doing this, that's going to be allowed. The idea of women doing this is like, nobody, nobody is agreeing to this. Nobody is giving, is like giving this the stamp of church approval. Not a thing, but I will, I will send you, um, some books on on Claire. Excellent. That's I think that's a really interesting like it's portray this so this the licenses they take in the movie portrays her desire to the extent mm-hmm. that we know it, right? Right. But no. Not her right. reality. And I and I find that frustrating because on the one hand, while I appreciate her being kind of given this agency, on the other hand, I think it's giving Francis and uh, you know, Pope Innocent Third too much credit in terms of them basically allowing this and allowing her to, you know, to do this thing that is for, you know, gendered reasons not considered to be acceptable. I also didn't love that the film presents her as in some combination of either isolation or always and exclusively surrounded by men. Mm-hmm. And that it really ignores the fact that, you know, what she is doing is she also is, you know, building an order around her, that there are women who are gathering around her and who are attempting also to live in poverty. Mm-hmm. And so I, on the one hand, obviously, you know, of course, like, like Francis, Kiata is in, uh, in some ways unique and special, mm-hmm. But I think that then the idea that, well, and then there's this big group of men and Kiara is there and presented as like the sole woman who would ever think to do this. Yeah. You know. Especially considering like, I mean, and I understand that in a movie about Francis, they are going to center Francis. And that's fair. Yes. Easily have just included, you know, when Claire is sitting there praying or, you know, it's something that there would be other women around. Give her, give her like some lady accessories at least. Like her sister, her sister joins yeah. the world actually gets a name right. change because of the yeah. violence, like experiences. And then mm-hmm. we'll name you Agnes because like the Lamb of Christ, you know, you mm-hmm. and, and, you know, that would be very easy to nod towards that. And right. as opposed to, I mean, in the beginning, they say like, oh, is she going to come? Because she's like, never goes out is that sort of like completely secluded and yet mm-hmm. that sole woman in that it's sort of a it, it's yeah. Just, yeah yeah so it's just you know I didn't really expect that this film would like pass the Bechdel test but I feel like they should have at least like you know honored those real women who were also attracted you know beyond Kiata who were attracted to this yeah. life I feel like they at least should have like shown them the respect of like hiring like four female extras to follow Kiata around 
Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Uh, that would have been super awesome. Yeah. So let's now get into Francis, which as, as someone who has taught an entire class on Francis, you obviously should take the lead in terms of, you know, what, what else do you want to add to this conversation about St. Francis of Assisi? So a few things that really struck me is that Perugia and that heresy thing. Like, mm, yes. that's really not good. I understand mm. 1985, 1989, and it's in 1985 that Leonard Boyle sort of challenges this idea of ill Prior to Leonard Boyle in 1985, there was this sort of idea that Innocent III was just like all vernacular Bibles are like a bad thing. Mm-hmm. If you actually read what Innocent III writes, it's not Bibles in the vernacular that is the problem. It's that people are using scripture wrong. And right. especially people who are reading in the vernacular might not have the training to actually get the things theologically right. But there's vernacular Bibles around. And especially mm-hmm. in the Psalms and individual Gospels especially the gospel of John, like these are around, this is not like a thing. So that in of itself, like- Yeah, it's certainly not like an automatic, like flaying if you have a vernacular Bible. That is not a thing. That is not Uh, a thing. And flaying is also not the penalty for heresy, but that's- But you know. You know. But having been said, had been found guilty of heresy by the Inquisition, which of course was a investigative and and correctional institution as opposed to the famous torture institution. But these- Although they did torture too, but that's not like a 12th century thing. I mean, it is, but right. not. not well, and also that the the torture is like essentially a bureaucratic means to an end and not to the sadistic institutional goal. Exactly. But, you know, if you were found guilty of heresy, you would have turned over to the secular authorities. So like the city mm-hmm. of Pena for, mm-hmm. um, for punishment. Um, so that is one thing. And also... The bigger issue here is that war between Perugia and Assisi. Right, it is because it's not about heresy. Not about heresy. It's absolutely not about heresy. This war, I'm pretty sure that they're trying to emulate, because there was a war, there was an actual war between Assisi mm-hmm. and Perugia at this time when Francis, you know, he's about 60, 50, 60, 70, so the prime time to go off and do crazy-ass mm-hmm. things to become a knight. And so this kind of goes back to that tension between the nobility, the boni homines, and the popolo, which, you know, mm-hmm. the, the merchant, the commercial classes, artisans, wealthy artisans, but above all the merchants. And so in 1197, the the people of property, the nobility, they throw out the duchy of Spoleto's garrison, sort of gaining independence from Spoleto in many ways. And there was about 20 families who were like seeking to control Assisi. The next year, the popolo, the merchant, the commercial classes are like, screw you. And the wealthy <laughs> families throw out, form a commune. So they incorporate as a commune. So in this, we have these tensions between the, the mercantile wealthy people who mm-hmm. are wealthy, but land poor and the nobility who are cash poor and land wealthy. And then who is going to have a say in this commune and the nobility are like, well, uh, we're the nobility duh, and the commercial powers that be are like, uh, yeah, but we've got the money. And so you get <laughs> war between the nobility which would have included Chiara of Freduccio's family uh-huh. and the mercantile families which would have included Pietro di Bernardone's family mm-hmm. and so the nobility like they first flee to the Rocca Maggiore which is this fortification in the CZ and eventually they flee to Perugia and they take sides and Perugia supports them and you have this Perugia supporting the nobility in 1202 we have this sort of massive 
I shouldn't say massive, but you know, medieval cities having fights. Mm-hmm. This is where Francis ends up in prison. He's about 16 or 17. Mm-hmm. There's peace in 1203, but there's unrest until 1210. And so right. this is part of those sort of tensions between the mercantile families, the nobility, but also mm-hmm. these city states and how they sort of vie for each other. And of course, it does then tie into which cities are Ghibellines and which are Guelphs, so or which oh, right. and which support the Holy Roman Empire. And how this becomes a war on heresy in this movie, especially because the actual story, there's so much potential, right? There's so yes, much because it really is kind of tapping into some of these kind of, you know, and people thinking, right, about wealth and about social stature, that these are real concerns in the film. And it's so weird, especially that they kind of make this heresy move because, I sort of thought that they were then, that the reason for that is that they were going to spend more time really grappling with the ways in which, you know, one could see Francis's movement as heretical, which they kind of don't. They just have this, like, there's a lady in it with you now. That's scandalous. But like, that's kind of it. And it's it's a missed opportunity. And it's also like the internal logic of the film doesn't work with if they have if you're going to have heresy as the reason for war you need to engage with heresy later and i also feel like i mean with the whole heresy thing i can sort of because the prevailing scholarship in the 80s you know was innocent the third didn't like vernacular bibles i can sort of like there's no i mean i can sort of see that right but Mm -hmm. then they don't they don't do anything with it but this civil war this like tensions between this is not something revolutionary. This is Italy. These city states are at war all yeah. the time. Those oh, ten- yeah. the the Boboni Hominis and the Popolo are constant. And I mean that's constant. The Gulf Ghibelline tensions are also constant. I was actually just talking about this to students because there's like I, the, the film The Little Hours like very offhandedly kind of mentions like it like mentions it. Yeah. So that yeah, it's like fun. I think you could have dealt with it. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of those things that like, yeah. I think could have should have in various yeah. ways that there's also that sort of like I think it it would have created really interesting tensions between Claire and Francis yes um, and you could have used that in ways that would have been more historically accurate and then you wouldn't have had the whole like heresy and playing thing I mean mm-hmm. I, that's also in one way like the actual story with the gospel is that Francis is like in the biographies he's like oh you know what am I going to do with my life and he walks into a church and you know that whole the church frowned on this but people still do it but like mm-hmm. open the, the gospel or the bible and read the first thing your eyes land on and basically does this three times and it always comes down to that like if you would be if you would be perfect to sell everything yeah. you have and, and like but now he has that he does that with his buddies that he reads mm-hmm. heretical vernacular book dun, dun, dun. <laughs> and so but you don't need to have that to get the gospel into his life right right so those are some of those things that You've noted the fine line between heresy and orthodoxy is a missed mm-hmm. topic. I did that sort of those physicality of piety. I like mm-hmm. I like those aspects of it. I like the tensions, like the way yes. they bring in nicely that tension of I want to nakedly follow the naked Christ, which I was mm-hmm. my is a technical term. And the that that's sort of how the order is growing and the posse of dudes, like when it gets to be so big, you have to right. have, and you have to have a role. 
and you have to have papal approval. And then you have all these people who are joining who kind of like the idea, but want to do it like Franciscan style light. And I <laughs> like, and I like the way they portrayed that both verbally in those scenes when they're challenging him, but also in that sort of like that scene when they're eating those fruits while they're talking is just right. Stuck. Yes. And that yeah. Christ and trying to write the rule and they're like, well, we know the gospel and we like it. And it's like, that's such a, that captures so well, like what Francis, what we mm-hmm. have and stuff. I really yeah. like who was not the Disney princess, Francis. I yes. Like- oh, the other thing uh, that I, I forgot, which I will just note is that my, I do have a theory about why they went like that particular kind of heresy route, which oh, okay. is that, and with the flaying, it's that my theory is that it's a cheaper way than a showpiece bloody battle to have your one scene being like, did you know it was very violent back then? That makes sense. Yes. Because, you know, a bunch of dead people. Yeah. Especially, you know, you want to have like bloody corpses and hacking. Like that's expensive. One how flayed else- dude in the corner is cheap. And how else are we going to know it's the Middle Ages? Mm-hmm. Exactly. You need some. You need somebody to be very violent. I mean, duh, of course. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that's that is my theory about what's actually the reason behind that episode. Not satisfying, but totally makes sense. It doesn't make the movie satisfying for me. No, but no. Hence, within the bigger picture of the Middle Ages, are violent edible. Yes, it's it happen. makes sense to me from a medievalism perspective, if yeah. not from a narrative perspective within the film. I mean, because internal logic can be sacrificed for catering to what we as a society have decided the Middle Ages are. Oh, yes. That can always, yeah. Historicity can always be sacrificed (laughs) to reception. There's one thing this podcast has reinforced for me. It is, in fact, that. Yes. I also do find it really interesting the way in which it kind of has this frame story element, uh, which, you know, sees right then the the creation of memory about uh, Francis. And I find it so interesting in terms of also thinking about like, how is this film also kind of doing the same thing? Yes. And this, this film is, is very hagiographical. It is from the perspective of, it shows the creation of reputation because I mean, that's sanctity mm-hmm. is not absolute. It's based on reputation. What a uh, canonization process discerns is not sanctity, but reputation of sanctity, right. which is important. The church, Catholic church does not make saints. It recognizes saints. Through mm-hmm. right. And Francis, of course, he's not the first one, the sort of the first imitation of Christ, apostolic life saint. I mean, he, does he qualify because he's also a founder of an order? Un- unclear. Um, but he fits. He's one of the early, you know, he's within the first cohorts to go through a canonization process in, in the new. Right. And so. And also, I will just say worth noting that, like, his canonization is also speedy. He yes. is recognized as a saint within, what, it's like two years of his death? Um, whereas, you know, there are, there are other people who, you know, died in the 13th, 14th century who, like, are still going through this. Oh, yeah, totally. And very speedy. Partially, I mean, there's all kinds of really good theories about this and probably is because Francis is incredibly popular. His mm-hmm. orthodoxy, um, the orthodoxy of the order at that point in history, you know, don't hold your breath for a couple of centuries. But And, and you know, the Pope is very much like, okay, so uh, Innocent III's successor is very much like, okay, let's commemorate this. You know, he has, that's about 
building the Basilica of St. Francis Assisi in Assisi. He orders, orders not the word, he commissions this biography by Thomas of Solano, who was a Franciscan, very, very well, well educated Franciscan, who writes a couple of biographies, the first biography, and then he writes a second biography and, you know, various texts. Then you have about 20-ish years later, mm-hmm. and uh, you have these recollections by people who knew Francis, uh, Legend of the Three Companions, attributed often to Leo, Angelo, and Rufino, which mm-hmm. are names that should um, resonate, which is why I think those are really important sources, probably. as a bunch of other texts as well. And then in the and then later we have Bonaventure Banyorejas. And all of these cater to not necessarily different audiences, mm-hmm. but different needs of the Franciscan order. Right. And where you first have the, oh, everyone, we have this amazing ball saint, like, let me teach you about them. Then you have the, oh, these are the stories that we're collecting because they're disappearing. And then you have like, okay, literally, Bonaventure is asked to write this official biography because there's so many stories and and they need to streamline and systemize. And so that the 13th century from a sort of Franciscan question is is the creation of, of the myth of the person of the saint of Francis of Assisi. Mm-hmm. And I think that they do that in the movie through the frame tale, but at the same time, the film in and of itself is a hagiography. It is And I mean I think like the like I think the line between biopic is is it really biopic? It sounds so wrong, whichever, and hagiography in general, I think that line is actually an oddly thin one. Mm-hmm. And that I mean, I think a lot of biopics are essentially, you know, secular hagiographies in some ways. Not all of them, but I think that's certainly a an element of the genre. Yeah, no, there's really important, interesting sort of about celebrity studies and celebrity culture and sanctity. Mm-hmm. I mean, because saints are by definition success stories. And yes. who do we have biopics of people that our society either consider success stories or like we want to revel in the gross, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in various ways. And so that that those sort of cross points are because we glorify biopics often yes. um, glorify whoever we're writing about. And that's what what hagiography also does. And it frames in a way that the audience, and the audience is also the authors. Mm-hmm. Right? Because if I'm writing a, you know, by Francis's time, if I'm writing a biography of Francis, if there's still people in his community who are alive and remember him, if I say something outrageous, people are going to be like, what the fuck, right? Right. That's, and I'm not saying that people aren't like inventing shit because they totally are. But yeah. they are framing it so that it is, it matches our vision of the yes the audience yeah. and author is a really important part of the sort of hagiographic method of source analysis mm-hmm. in the same way if you're going to create a, a biopic of elvis it's going to have to either match very closely mm-hmm. what of elvis or it has to be super controversial and show like Ooh, right that most people don't want to be challenged right in terms of what their expectations are of what this of who this figure is and what story is going to be told about them right and and i think that that's sort of like I think those are sort of really important things to kind of think about how fundamentally maybe biopics are hagiographies mm-hmm. um, and sort of that. And I also think about like, how are we going to convey a success story? And maybe it right. is a, with bringing in to portray the famous people, people who already are famous. I think about, mm-hmm. is it Notting Hill when they, the Julia Roberts and Hugh yeah. movie and the people who were writing it were like, oh, well, why don't we bring the most famous actress in the world to play the most famous actress in the world? Right. 
right? And so they bring in Julia Roberts. And I wonder if to what extent they're sort of like, okay, we're going to portray this saint. Let's bring in people who match our view mm. of success and beauty and perfection and blah, blah, yeah. blah. Icky Rourke and Helena Bonham Carter. I mean, maybe mm-hmm. that's part of that kind of hagiographic narrative. Yeah. Well. Like to the audience, we're sending these cues of these are the people that are famous and worth You should them. find these people compelling. Yeah, exactly. Compelling. And mm-hmm. and sort of those hagiographic aspects in the movie and how they've, they've narrated sanctity without actually using supernatural beyond the stigmata. Which, mm-hmm. you know, he's sick. He might have, they might be self-inflicted. I mean. Right. And because, we, and because we don't see it happen, right? I mean, we no. see him praying and then we see him with the stigmata. Exactly. And so there's a remarkable lack of supernatural in yeah. the saint. And I think that they do that. I, I feel like they do a really good way. I'm sort of shocked at how well they couch it in the Christomimesis, in the, yeah. like, waves of lay piety because these dudes aren't coming out of anywhere they're in this world where apostolic life is a really big thing to the point that this is the number one issue with all these heretics running around mm-hmm. um is that they are basically want to follow the gospel yeah. and some kind of take it too far about tag if you're going to create a new religious movement in the middle ages don't criticize the papacy and if the criticized papacy tells you to jump ask how high don't yep. refuse to jump. Yep, and Francis totally does that. And yeah, and so I do, there's sort of and you know all these dudes that are you know we kind of see a little bit of that with 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 Chiara's mm-hmm. charity. But yeah, I think I got off off track there, but I do I do think that they do a sort of a as a hagiography translating essentially an early thirteenth tw- century dude right. to you know the nineteen eighty yeah. I think they do a pretty good job. And I wonder to what extent if they included Supernatural, that would turn the audience off. Right. And I think it would be, and I think there are struggles with depicting Supernatural. I think there there are struggles with depicting Supernatural elements convincingly. Yeah, I can see why they might have shied away from that. If you Um, also see the movie uh, Stigmata, because talking about Oh, yes. Yes. I mean, it's one of my all-time favorite movies, which I, I refuse to watch and refuse to see. Anything that I say is one of my favorite movies because I like Stigmata and Pathfinder, which is terrible. As right. we have in I'll, yes, I'll, I'll have to be in touch with you because every now and then I think, like, could I justify covering Stigmata, which is oh, which I also kind oh, of love. Like, can I justify yeah. covering this as a work of medievalism? And oh, I yes, feel absolutely. the answer is yes. So I'll be in Get touch. I'm on, that. I'm on that, yes. All right. It is totally medievalism, like in ways, but the getting medieval shit wrong in ways that is really, oh yeah, not yeah. just medieval, but pieties and and signs of of holiness yes. and lack thereof that originate in the Middle Ages. Yes, yeah. No, I. All right, we'll discuss. We'll discuss. This then is perhaps a good time to talk about the uh, the Faith of the Nostra or the. Films that we might wish to see in the world that does not currently exist, but inspired by this one. Uh, Because I was thinking like, what would I have wanted this movie to be? And apart from a couple of sort of things like heresy and like the war with Perugia and some other things, I like the movie as it is. But I felt like what movie could have been like inspired by this? And I mean, I would say, Claire, I would want a movie about 
filmmaker. And I would want somebody who wrote a good script, having studied Hmm. Bill Mueller and Catherine Mooney's work extensively. Yes. uh, Jillian Algren's tenderness. Yes. Into that. And also including making it like a religious chick flick from mm-hmm. the including yeah. Claire and her women and their fight for poverty mm-hmm. and, her, and her correspondence with Agnes of Prague. Because she right. had mm-hmm. Prague, who's a princess, yeah. who refuses, who kind of embraces this apostolic life and then becomes a poor Claire and, and working with that. And mm-hmm. I think be a really compelling kind of a story about these women and networks of women. Yes. And also this idea of, I think I would want to include in that, you know, not just Claire fight or Chiara or however we decide to call her fighting for what, you know, the scholars call the privilege of poverty, uh, mm-hmm. which actually Claire also talked about the privilege of poverty. Yeah. But also I would like to include, you know, her standing up to these dudes who are like, well, we're, we're going to like eat all this food and we're going to yeah. like, institutional wealth but individual poverty and her she's baby. like no that's bullshit right. exactly. <laughs> like, which is, yeah which is great and which is really interesting and yeah i know i mean that's very much the kind of thing that i would like to see as well uh i will also note that i would really like it to be in the hands of a woman director i don't have a particular person in mind but uh, that that is something that I would really kind of mm-hmm. feel strongly about in terms of kind of thinking about how the story gets told. I also was thinking uh, Florence Pugh could be an interesting Kiara. Um, I'm going to have to Google Florence Pugh here real quick because I do not know who that is. I don't know who anyone is. So she is uh, she is in Midsommar, which I am very fond of. I have not seen, even though everyone thinks ah. that. Oh, you should absolutely see it. But so I, she's I, that in in that movie with um the Black Widow movie. Yes, yeah, she and she fantastic. And she was good. Yeah, and she's given. I will say, like I, I really love her. I think she has uh, done a real range of things. I've seen her in a few different performances. That like her character in Midsommar and her character in Black Widow. And she also like plays Amy in the new Little Women movie. Like they're all really different roles. And she really, I think, absolutely nailed all of them. And I think that the, and it was to some extent, it was kind of her role in Midsommar because that's such a sort of emotionally intense role and a role that actually kind of deals with suffering intensely in a lot of ways. That was kind of what made me think of her. But I think also like just the fact that like she has an immense amount of range. She is somebody absolutely that I could like see pulling off totally. what could be a really challenging performance. And another from the Marvel universe is that I thought of uh, Sebastian Stan as a casting for Francis. Who, which one is that? He is Bucky or the Winter Soldier. Oh, oh, oh. Right. Yeah, I can see that. Mm-hmm. I can see that. So yeah, mm-hmm. so that's my that's my dream casting for my. Who would, who would you have as the Pope? Oh, who would I have as the Pope? Because of course, I mean, you you you'd have to sort of. Yeah, well, you could. I mean, choose to have Innocent the Third, of course. You know, Innocent mm-hmm. doesn't have uh, Innocent the Third. I mean, in various right. ways. Right. Uh, but I also think that there would be really Honorius uh, uh, the Third then. Right. Who, the successor who actually ends up being sort of the well he's it's an honorary third but then gregory the ninth who are like the ones that really 
Claire of Assisi ends up kind of grappling with, especially in right. I mean, he's also the cardinal who ends up being sort of like Ugolino de Conte, who ends up being mm-hmm. sort of, who comes up with this idea of women who want to be like Franciscans. Let's do this weird Benedictine mishmash thing. So any castings for these Pope dudes? So I'm going to suggest just one piece of, I guess, papal casting. And I'm going to say, I don't know, I'm like, I'll say maybe Honorius, just because he, I think, probably would make sense to be kind of the biggest role, potentially, of the Popes. I'm going to say Jeremy Irons. Oh, yeah. Jeremy Irons. And I think he'd be, you know, a, a worthy figure for, for her to act against uh, as a papal representative. Yeah, I know that. I was going to go with like Stellan Skarsgård or something, but mm. yeah, Jeremy Irons. And I mean, yeah, yeah, I know that would work. Cardinal Ugolino and then on to be Pope. And I mean, there's yeah. some, yeah, that would be, it would be an interesting sort of, I mean, I wonder to what extent one could do sort of like, one could even if one may, went a little bit kind of edgy, one could have like the main characters just being Claire and the Pope. Well, first mm-hmm. the Cardinal. And the cardinal who's been appointed by the pope to kind of deal with these women, yeah, and becoming pope, and you know, like one where there's a lot of intense letter writing and a lot of yes, intellectual pitting this intellectual woman where you know this pope first the first the the bishop cardinal bishop and then the pope realizing like this is somebody who is has this very strong will. She's not mm-hmm. a woman to be pushed around. She has a very clear vision, and she is leveraging the Franciscan vision in ways that yes. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think also even, you know, I think really, yeah, having it be focused on that and then maybe having, uh, maybe even having Francis really kind of even show up mostly like in flashbacks Mm -hmm. as, uh, you know, and to being somebody who, you know, clearly the memory of him is important, but that he is, you know, not a kind of central character. Exactly. Wonder if he could even also only be present through his writing. Right. Yeah. Or like people talking about him, mm-hmm. like not even be, because, I mean, I think there would be some kind of justice in that because yeah. Keanu has always been marginalized and you have all these yes. books and studies and people talking about Francis who mention Claire as mm-hmm. a hanger on, as opposed to a absolute central right. whole mission. And I wonder yeah, that I think, yeah, poetic. I think him being, yeah, subordinate. I think I, I really want him to be a subordinate character. I want him to be occasionally visibly present only because I actually really like my Sebastian Stan casting idea. Sure, um, sure, but that. I think, yeah, having, ha- as I said, having something like, you know, seeing him mostly in like flashbacks or something along those lines could be, could be an interesting move. Interesting. And I do think that there's sort of like, I mean, Clara lives so much longer. Like she yes. dies whenever it is. I don't remember when she dies, which I should probably do that. But oops. But I do think that, I mean, she's so, she's so significant for the survival of the idea of the Franciscan. She yeah. doesn't get her credit. And yeah. Yeah, she lives another like 25, 25, 27 years, 1253. Mm. I mean, even my cat agrees. And he's a little more mm. the Yeah. Oh my god, my dog, my cat is snuggled up against my dog. I'm gonna see if I can get a photo before we oh, no. stay. 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 No, oh damn it. They did ever stay when you want them to stay. It's like I know. Well, I know that it happened. It was very, very charming. My cat also looked away at the moment I was gonna take a picture of him. Damn it. Jerks. Oh you not jerks, I adore you. Anyway. I think we have so, a 
Yeah. I think so too. Um, so yeah, so we can now, I think, uh, rate, rate the film that we actually watched and that exists on our scale from one to five based on whatever purely arbitrary criteria we see fit. Mm. I tend to be a harsh critic. So I was thinking probably around a 3.5. I appreciate a lot about the clear kind of work that went into this film and a lot of the choices that it made. I at times felt like just as a film, it was relatively kind of slow paced in a way that I... 80s, it's 1989. Yes, yeah. So I'm giving it a little off for that and I'm giving it a little off for I... I think I would have liked to kind of have more of a sense of like the existence of the poor Claire's in terms of, you know, the, I mean, the ways in which like in things that in the middle ages in general, right. Women tend to be marginalized. And at best it's like, you may, you may have one lady in this movie, one, one lady max, other lady, no more ladies. Um, We do have his mom. Uh, right, but like, does she even, do we have? Do we even get a name for her? Like, really, I think Kiara is the only named female character, and it's like honestly, you know, given the real history there, it is another example where it's like you could have done better. Yeah, this having been said, in 1980s, that was the history. This was what historians right. were mostly right. talking about, yeah. which it kind of reflects that. Which is no, I mean, it's it's um explanation, not an excuse or right. justice. Right. I- I would give it a four. I am sort of partially, I like the sort of historiographical nature. I like mm-hmm. the hagiographical nature. I like the way it nods to not just Francis as the saint, but Francis as a founder. And yes. those tensions that are inherent during his lifetime in the Franciscan order, that makes me super happy. Mm-hmm. I like the way the construction of memory and how that sort of works as part of that. And I really like that Chiara is incorporated as pious, independent of Francis, maybe even inspired, yes. the movie clearly inspiring Francis. Mm-hmm. That, especially given that she's so central in kicking, keeping his vision alive and kicking so mm-hmm. long. And she does get a decent amount to do. I will say in that I will say this film fares better than a lot of films set in the Middle Ages and that, yes, we have... Die. She doesn't die. This film absolutely passes the Ipsch Decker test, uh, but also like she has something to do. I mean, most of the time, you know, women are accessories and love interests for the male characters, uh, whereas like, you know, our arc, the Kiara that we see here, I and mean, she absolutely like, she has agency, she has her own goals. Uh, she has influence upon Francis. I think yeah, she- fight for yes. the goals and to achieve them. Uh, mm-hmm. Both fight the male lead and mm-hmm. fight family and her times conventions mm-hmm. um and they're in many ways I mean, she is much more consistent she's pious yes. and she's pious for the end she doesn't go through you know flip-flopping and being like i don't know right. what she's very clear on mm-hmm. on sort of that her piety and i mean it intensifies and deepens and, and all that which is mm-hmm. fine and so those are things that i like i also like that they i like the sort of that it wasn't set in the 15th century, which is always exciting. Yes. <laughs> Notwithstanding, like, the whole vintage distressed gene. <laughs> <laughs> the distressed portrait of Innocent III. <laughs> I mean, from there. So, 
yeah, so those are things I like. I like the sort of the Angela Rufino and Leo being so central because they're, you know, the mm-hmm. companions. And yeah. So those are things that I outweigh some of the things that really annoyed me. That's fair. I That's feel fair. like if they hadn't had the order, like the tensions within the order, like that would have dropped this for me. Definitely. Uh-huh. Yeah. No, that that definitely makes sense. Yeah, and I I I was I was kind of torn. And I think I ultimately felt that the the three point five I was kind of like, oh, that means ultimately reflects my experience. But I I liked this. I would recommend this. And I think, you know, and also I'm I am always so pleased to see a medieval movie that is not just look swords. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you know, again, like always, always nice to cover something that is different in some ways. Gratuitous, you know, male nudity, but not a lot of swords. And um, also very, way more male nudity than female nudity. Is there any female nudity? No. No, right? That's so interesting. Medieval movie? Like, are we sure it is actually a medieval movie with so female death and nudity? I don't know. I feel like I'm gonna like. I usually don't go this, but this uh, micro. But I feel like I'm gonna. I don't know. Maybe up to like a three point seven to five as like a thank you for. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> I have. This is absolutely also like describing my grading process. So in terms of the like being like, well, I feel like it's not quite this, but it's not quite this. Like, how many decimal points can I get into and not be the absolute worst? Like, <laughs> oh, and I'm like, and benefit of the doubt. If it's like between a, yeah, 3.5 or a 4, I'm going to like be like 4. And then my student horribly harsh grader, and I'm just like, oh, honey. But that's okay. Whatever. I'm glad, I'm glad that you, uh, I'm glad that we were able to talk this up to a 3.75 then. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, and I am a particularly harsh critic on this pod. I'm much, I'm much harsher on this podcast than I am on my students. I mean, <laughs> you know, that, choose your... Exactly. Thank you so much for coming on for this. Are there places that you would like listeners to find you on the internet? I mean, there's my university webpage, which at Xavier University, I do have a Twitter account, but I'm like pretty much dormant. I'm doing sort of, because the whole Ukraine thing, my Mm -hmm. family's like too close to comfort and shit like that. I'm just like paring down on my social media. Very, very fair. You know, I used to tweet about Xavier University Theater and about my about the library, but even that I'm just like not. So I think it's just Xavier University webpage. That's it. And All I do right. have Fort Francis, the major of a saint. Yes. So yeah, go 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 to, go to Xavier and take me to his class. Right. <laughs> yeah. And if you have enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe in your preferred podcatcher app, but please rate and review. I'll read new five-star reviews on future episodes. Please also follow the podcast on Twitter at Media Evil Pod and join the Facebook group. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Sarah F. Decker. If you have any questions or suggestions, I'd love to hear from you via email at media.evilpod at gmail.com. Sumiti, thank you again. Thank you so much. Yay, friends. Yay! And thank you all for listening to Media Evil. Bye. And on um, Francis's he his famous pace et bonum, peace and well-being. Pace I mean, et bonum. Pace et bonum. Yes, I thought I'd throw that in. Yes. You have pace et bonum. <laughs>